That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. So two nights ago, 10 o'clock at night, Dog in my backyard, our dog, is barking. Yapping, yapping, yapping. Not unusual. But I took a look at the uh, I took a look at the camera to see what was going on with the dog, and the dog appeared to be in a bit of a frenzy. It looked like there was an animal in the backyard of some kind. Got one of those little frou-frou dogs. It's the kind of dog that if I saw you and I had my dog, I would be a little embarrassed that you saw me. You know, I'm not saying I'm ashamed of the dog, but it would raise questions. It would be like, Kanzano, you have a frou-frou dog. Where's your real dog? We have one real dog. We have two dogs that are kind of smaller and frou-frou. We're a three-dog household right now. I'm not I'm not thrilled about that, but uh, I'm not in charge. Three daughters, three dogs. N- needless to say, or nevertheless, uh, the one of the dogs was yapping in the backyard. And it became evident that there was some kind of animal out there. It was dark, of course, and Anna grew up in the city. I grew up a little bit rural, which means this is going to fall into my category, my genre of uh, get John. He'll he'll figure this out. And so I end up in the backyard, and you know, anybody who's ever dispatched into the backyard at 10, 11 o'clock at night, midnight, 1 a.m., knows that prior to that, what uh, what happens, or at least what happens in our household, is that there is a, there is a, a search for a flashlight. And, uh, you know, we have a container that's got, like, flashlights in it, or it's, in theory it's supposed to have flashlights in it. But the kids, uh, the 5-year-old, 6-year-old, 7-year-old, 8-year-old, 9-year-old, whatever they are right now, 7 and 9, um, they will um, occasionally grab said flashlights and use them for impractical reasons like you know putting on like a silhouette animal puppet show on the wall or uh, just having it in their room so that they can read a book after we have turned the lights out and said lights need to go out it's time for bed Um, and so I uh, was struggling to get a flashlight eventually found one got into the backyard Uh, we got the dog put away and Anna's reporting to me and she's making this motion with her hands uh, it, it, it's almost like a uh, she's making a snowball-like uh, motion with her hands, saying there's an animal of some kind, and it's about this big. And she was kind of holding her hands in the shape of a softball. That would be the best way that I could describe it. And so I go into the backyard, and I, again, I grew up rural. I've seen raccoons. I've seen a possum a weasel, uh, a bat, um, you know, an owl, uh, you know, I'm not, there's, uh, it, maybe it's a mouse, maybe it's a rat, I don't know. It, I'm, but I'm not afraid of this thing. But I also know that if you're going to corner a wild animal, 
one of the best things you can do in cornering said animal, and your pest control people will probably attest to this, is give it an out. Especially if you don't feel like handling it. Give it an out. Give it a lane. Give it somewhere to run. So it's funny when I look back at the video of Anna and I as we were approaching this unknown animal that Anna has has uh, essentially turned into the shape of a softball, that I uh, turned to Anna at one point and very visibly tell her, like, step aside here. You don't want to be in the path of an animal if it's afraid. You want to be, like, step aside, play like you are in a bullfight, ole, let it go, uh, and get out of the way. Because you don't know what it is. You don't, you don't know what this thing is. But I get out there, and I think to myself, well, there's some nocturnal animal out here that has been uh, got the attention of the dog. It appears to be cornered. It was in this little area in the backyard where it was behind, like, a cooler that should normally have soft drinks in it on a warm summer, 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 summer day. And instead, it's just kind of sitting somewhere. And then behind it, here's this animal. And I get the flashlight on it, and I'm immediately aware of what is happening. It is a bird of some kind. Appears to be a fledgling, not able to fly, but old enough maybe to be out of a nest. And it is a fairly good-sized fledgling bird, so immediately I'm like, I don't know what it is. It looks gray to me, but then upon further examination, I realize it's a blue jay or some kind of jay that is blue. And I realize, like, much ado about nothing. This is a fledgling bird. If we leave it alone, if it's not hurt, probably it goes away. So I told Anna, lock up the dogs, let's just go to bed, and tomorrow we will check on said bird, and it will be gone, hopefully. We don't have to deal with it. So we just kind of left it. And uh, here came O-Dark 30 in the morning, and our nine-year-old's an early riser, and she appeared uh, at the side of my bed at about 5.30 in the morning. Any parent knows what that experience is like. Um, you know, I needed another half hour, but there she is, and the day's starting, whether I like it or not. And so I inform her, and I can barely get the sentence out, that there is a fledgling blue jay, or a jay of some kind, in our backyard that made quite the ruckus last night. I'm going to go down and check on it. By the time I finish that sentence, she's already halfway to the backyard, got her shoes on. She's ready. She is ready to go. She's never been more excited to see what was going on. She also has summoned her sister, who is not an early riser, who for some reason is up and at him because there's a bird in the yard and there's something going on. Now, I'm hoping with every bit of my fiber that this bird is not in the backyard at this point because I don't want to deal with it. I had a full day, bunch of meetings, bunch of stuff to go to, and I'm thinking, you know, do I want to end up like having to go to pet rescue? Do I want to end up having to sequester the dogs for a full day? What if the bird's injured? All these things are going through my mind. And I get out into the backyard, and to my disappointment, that fledgling bird was in the exact same place that I left it at about 11 p.m. the night before um, and uh, didn't look happy about it. So I went, damn it, this is not what I had signed on for. Um, I'm not liking this. But my instinct was to... Move the bird, not to leave it kind of over near the house, but to pick the bird up and maybe put it um, over on the other side of the yard where there's some arborvita and some other trees and stuff and, you know, has some cover for what could be a warm day. Yesterday was supposed to be a warm day, and I was not feeling good about just leaving this bird, like, kind of out in the open on gravel 
you know, six feet from the house, not in a good spot. So I scoop the bird up. The girls think I'm a hero for that, by the way. Not not a big deal, but if you're a dad, you understand. Your mom, you understand. Like I saw my mom as a kid, because we lived a little rural. She encountered a giant gopher snake one day. My mom uh, did not grow up in the country. She learned to love it. But uh, I, I'll never forget the sight of my mother, who became a nurse, reaching down to pick up a gopher snake from the back of its neck and carry it like she was a snake handler through the yard. The snake must have been four or five feet long, just dangling from my mom's arm. She looked sure as anything. I'll never forget it. And I wonder if my kids will ever forget the sight of me picking up that uh, fledgling blue jay. I don't know. But I scooped it up, and the bird was oddly calm in my hands. And I thought to myself, like, you know, uh, this is an interesting position that you're in as a human. And you're handling a bird. You never get really this close in a natural uh, circumstance with a bird like this. It's generally in the wild. We've seen blue jays in our yard or whatever they are. And uh, I figure that it must have come from a nest or some area over on the other side of the yard. So I'm going to return it there. And I set it gently into uh, under some cover in the bushes. And, uh, and then I thought to myself, you know, maybe uh, whoever's feeding this animal or if this animal's feeding itself, maybe we should give it something to eat. And Anna happened to have a hard-boiled egg that was sitting out that she had uh, made for breakfast or whatever. I said, hey, are you going to use that egg? She said, no. And I said, I know this sounds a little bit like a cannibal, but I wonder if the bird would eat the egg or whatever he feeds the bird would eat the egg. And so I put a piece of the egg out there alongside or nearby where the bird was, and I left. I went off to do my thing, meetings, whatever. Anna was doing her thing. Kids went to school, came home, and again I hoped that the bird would not be there. Unfortunately, when I got home, Yesterday, it was right during the middle of the show. I did not host yesterday's show. I had a bunch of uh, meetings and stuff. I had a day off. And uh, unfortunately, the bird was still in the general vicinity of where I left it. And one other thing is that I noticed was there appeared to be an adult blue jay or whatever kind of jay this was. I want to call it a blue jay, but somebody's going to call in and be like, you're not a bird watcher. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not really a blue jay. But it looks like a blue jay. And uh, I, have, I see an adult blue jay that's literally in the same bushes that I put the bird in. And I almost come eye to eye with it. It's sitting at about five feet up on the air. And it's just kind of watching and surveying the scene down below. Now, my instinct there is to, like, back away very slowly, go back into the house. I've seen Hitchcock movies. Just let it go. The birds know what they're doing. This appears to be nature running its course. Be done with it. But Anna had an event she was going to, and I sensed also that she was kind of tired of dealing with the bird situation. I don't know. You can ask her. But So she says, why don't you call the Audubon Society and ask them what to do? Now, this goes against everything again. I'm a guy. I don't ask for directions. I don't, I, you know, I'm not lost. And uh, nevertheless, uh, I followed uh, her advice. And I looked up the Portland Audubon Society, and I made a phone call there, and uh, I got a message. They said, leave a message. I did. I basically said everything that I've told you to this point. And I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should take the bird and bring it to you. I don't know if because the other bird is there, I should leave it be. Or I don't know if it, I don't even know if it's hurt. I'm not, like, you know, versed on birds. 
Is it hurt, or is it just kind of scared and in shock, or what do I do here? And uh, subsequently, I also emailed the Audubon Society, and they said, we will return your call if we get your message before 5 o'clock. Lo and behold, they kept their word, because I not only got an email response from one person, I got a phone call from a nice lady at the Audubon Society who reached out to say, tell me what's going on. Like, give me the situation. It's like DEFCON 3 in her world. Like, she knew. I could just hear her on the other end of the phone. She's rolling up her sleeves. She's getting ready to tell me what to do or or instruct me. I had already gathered up a shoebox. I had already poked holes in it in the event that she was going to say, hey, bring the bird in right away. Got to see this animal. Uh, And she said to me, "Um, you know what? The other bird is there. Yeah. I said, the adult bird is nearby. She said, leave it be. She says, as long as it doesn't look hurt, just leave it and assess again in another 12 hours. So now, mind you, this has now gone on. This We're, we're going on like, you know, approaching, you know, we're going to deal with this thing for 24 to 36 hours at this point. And so leave the bird. We go off to an event. Anna was speaking at a rotary event last night. She gave a great speech talked about what the uh, scholarship she got in high school meant, very emotional speech, how much it meant to her growing up, uh, you know, in the area of uh, Sandy Boulevard and 115th where she grew up as a kid, and you've heard her talk about it on the show. It was kind of a, it was a a tough upbringing. But uh, she gave the speech, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about that bird the whole time. I'm thinking, you know, I hope that bird's gone. I hope the, uh, the adult Jay knew what to do with the bird. And so we return home, lo and behold, said bird is still in the backyard. It's moved. It's moved out back into the open a little bit, came from out from under the, uh, the cover, but it's still there. And as I looked from across the yard, I saw the most amazing thing. It wasn't just one adult blue jay in the yard anymore now i've seen a blue jay or two over the years but i've never seen the scene that i saw yesterday at about six o'clock there were three adult blue jays now in the yard they were all within about 15 feet of that fledgling and as i walked into the yard they started to alarm each other you know i'm not going to give you the bird call steven can you do a bird call uh, i cannot that sounds difficult no bird call i and I and I hope I'm not putting the audience to sleep here, but I, I'm going somewhere with this with this uh, story. Three adult birds, in kind of a defensive triangulation. It was like the triangle offense of Tex Winter in the Chicago Bulls and Phil Jackson executing. It was Pippen, it was Jordan. You know, there was a little uh, there was a little hor- there was a little Grant out there. There was a little Bill Wennington maybe setting screens. It was a triangle formation between these uh, three Blue Jays. And I thought to myself, like, they've got this covered. But I still kind of watched out the window and surveyed what was happening. Now, the girls had planted strawberries in the yard, and what I watched over the next five minutes blew my mind. And maybe if you're somebody who uh, follows nature, bird watches all the time, you're not going to be the least bit surprised by this. But I kind of live in a world where I want to fix things. I wanted to pick the bird up. I wanted to put it in a shoebox. I wanted to put it back in the tree, wherever it belonged, and be done with it, fix it. Let's see a problem, fix it. Give it food, fix it. Uh, that's what I am, a fixer. So it blew my mind as I watched the Blue Jays take turns 
one of the Jays would leave, and it would go over to this area of the yard where the girls had planted strawberries. Now, the strawberries were not ripe. They were still green. But the Blue Jays were eating the strawberries and then flying over to the fledgling one by one and feeding it one by one. Now, mind you, one of these birds might have been its mother, but all three of it could not possibly have been the mother. I don't know if this was like the chow line. I don't know if this is the way that birds uh, react when they see a crisis. But I do know that they took turns for about five minutes feeding that bird while I watched them from the window, marveling at it, going, what do we think? We're going to step in and scoop the bird up and take it to the Audubon Society? Now, the, the nice lady from the Audubon Society told me that if the bird were still there this morning, that I probably needed to consider that it might be injured. But I went out into the yard this morning, and there was no bird. I looked in the bushes, no bird. I looked in the arborvita, no bird. I did see one jay, maybe at about 11 a.m., as I went second and third time out into the yard going, did I miss it? Is it somewhere else? It's not there. I don't know what happened to the bird. But I'll tell you this. There is a system in nature that we're all well aware of like there's a balance of nature there's a cycle of life there's you know there's a system going on that we don't have to account for you know long you know more think about you know are there enough insects to eat out there are there enough for the birds to eat what does it mean if there isn't enough you know more think about that on a daily basis than you think about taking a breath it just happens there are things that sort of automatically happen without you having to consciously think about them i think about that and that scene that we saw yesterday, and I thought to myself, gosh, that was so natural. It was as if nature knew what to do. Like, problem got solved. Unless, like, an owl came in the middle of the night or a cat came and ate that fledgling, uh, the Blue Jays took care of business. They got the fledgling where it needed to be or it got itself where it needed to be. And I keep thinking about that, like, from a sports standpoint. Like, I'm going to make the leap now. Trailblazers, Inc., we think about things that Joe Cronin needs to do as the draft approaches. The Oregon Ducks, we think about recruiting in Dan Lanning, what steps he needs to take, what hires he needs to make with his staff. Jonathan Smith in Oregon State, we think about the transfer portal and he gets a quarterback, and you know these are moves that we see that are happening. But there were a lot of moves inside successful sports franchises that happen on a daily basis that are quite natural and automatic. They're inherent to... Like the balance of nature inside every sports team. I know it's a little bit of a leap, but stay with me here. I feel like the entities that are successful, like really successful, the Denver Nuggets are a great example of that with Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Michael Malone, their coach, the Kroenke family owning the team. There are just a lot of little things that happen when you look back at a successful championship run and you go, gosh, that looked so easy. It probably didn't feel easy several years ago when the Nuggets got knocked out of the playoffs by the Blazers. It probably didn't feel easy when they had to make shrewd decisions with their roster. It probably didn't feel easy when, you know, they had to decide, you know, as Mike Malone run his course, you know, when they weren't getting the breakthrough and they decided to stay with him. But there's a lot of what happens inside winning sports franchises, great businesses, great families that looks very easy because it's sort of in the DNA of the franchise. It's sort of in, like, the Blue Jays in the backyard. They just knew what to do. They were doing what they, what, what they do. And I was looking at it going, well, maybe I need to get in there and fix it. 
And I keep thinking about that with the Blazers organization in spe- specifically. Like last night, that's what I thought about. Shortly after, I was taking the trash out, and I was thinking, like, you know, nothing looks that easy with the Blazers. Nothing looks that natural. Why do other sports franchises look like they have it together, look like the decision-making just sort of fits, like everything's done through the filter of the brand, so to speak? Everything happens, you know, you know, in the spirit of the franchise. There's one heartbeat. Everybody knows where the heart is, where it's beating, why it's beating. Nobody's really saying, you have to take a breath. Okay, take another breath. Okay, now take another breath. Now blink. Nobody's doing that in a successful sports franchise. Why? Because you got great ownership, you got great coaching, you got a great GM, you have players who understand what's going on, and the franchise sort of very naturally does what it's supposed to do. And when there are big decisions, the decisions get made with, you know, good strategy and sound logic in mind. It's really what's missing with the franchises and the teams and the entities that struggle. I see some of that missing in the Pac-12. I see some areas and some teams in the Pac-12 that are kind of guessing and hoping and wishing that maybe it'll work out. I think Washington State has struggled a little bit in the wake of the Nick Rolovich fiasco and how that splintered the fan base. You know, they're dealing with budget problems. I think there's some inherent issues going on there that have been distracting. I think the Blazers have been a mess. I think you look at, you know, the Oregon State entity and you go, gosh, so much of what Jonathan Smith is doing right now and then last season looked very natural, looked very easy. Like, you know, he looked very much like there was an orchestrated effort and everything was moving in the right direction. Well, it wasn't accidental. That groundwork was laid seasons ago by Jonathan Smith. Continuity. He had a plan. Followed through. Dan Lanning has a plan. He's following through with it. Think about that. Maybe the next time you're wondering, what should my team do on draft day? Or what should, uh, should they trade said player or keep said player? Think about it from the prism of uh, you know, what is natural to the franchise. And I think that's the problem that we're struggling with a little bit with this Blazers decision and draft day coming up, you know, what, eight days from now, and the Blazers are going to have to make a decision. You know, are they going to pick at number three? If so, are they staying with that player? Is it part of the future? Are they going to have to trade Damian Lillard at some point? Are they going to have to pivot now before the draft? Like, it feels really clunky and unnatural, doesn't it, as we all sort of debate it. And I think that's, to me, the biggest problem going on at Trailblazers, Inc. right now. They've forgotten how to be part of the ecosystem in the NBA, or at least a winning ecosystem. we got a great show for you. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group's coming up. Later in the show, Tom Crean, former coach at Indiana and Marquette. He's been in the broadcast booth. He's going to talk to us about basketball in general. In this era of transfer portal, NIL, trying to build a winner in college basketball, how tough is that? What would he tell parents who've got young kids who are playing youth basketball? What does he want coaches to know? Tom Crean, expert on basketball, coming up at 4 o'clock. Leave it here. John Wilner is the guru of the Pac-12 Conference. You can read him at Pac-12Hotline.com. He writes for the San Jose Mercury News, Bay Area News Group, and joining us uh, to talk about the Pac-12 conference. Uh, Kirk Schultz last week, Wilner, Washington State president, kind of signaling that we could be in the fourth quarter, late in the fourth quarter. Where do you see this negotiation if it's a football game? Well, I think that, uh, you know, we are certainly midway through the fourth quarter, right? I think that there is like a 0.00, you know, awaiting the conference. I can't imagine that this thing is going to be un 
unresolved on July 21st when they have football media day in Las Vegas and they're planning to promote the heck out of all the stellar quarterbacks and all the top 25 teams and the coaches, right? That is the biggest platform the conference has every year to promote its football teams. And if there's no media deal by then, that will suck up every ounce of oxygen and there'll be no attention paid to the the players and the coaches. And the conference does not want that. And the repercussions, I think, would be severe. Uh, So to me, they got to have it done by and announced by July 21st. Robert Robbins, president of Arizona, says that he ha- he hasn't seen numbers, or at least he sort of let on that he hadn't seen numbers yet. I don't believe him. Um, what motivation <laughs> does he have to say that? And do you believe that he hasn't seen numbers? Well, has he s- seen or heard? I mean, you can parse that a bunch of ways, right? He hadn't, he hasn't been shown a formal offer, but has he been told what the f- basic framework of a deal is? I mean. It depends on how literally you're taking him with his choice of words. Uh, I think that the presidents have a very good idea of what the offer is going to look like. Maybe not exact figures, maybe not uh, exact details on how much is linear versus streaming or the, the, the kickoff selection process for week eight, so to speak. But I think they all at this point have a pretty good idea of what it should be. And if the final bid comes in or has come in with what they expect, they're all going to sign and uh, move forward together. Wilner, this has been a saga, right? We could probably write a book oh on, on this whole process. That l- let's try to let's try to go, you know, a couple years in the future, a year in the future, six months in the future. We're looking back at the last eight, nine, ten months. What do you think we'll be talking about when it comes to how the Pac-12 played it? What happened? Mistakes that were made? I mean, you know, you tell me. Oh, gosh. I, I Well, I think for sure we are going to learn something either that's stated publicly or we're told privately. If they do sign a deal, we're going to learn something at that time that changes how we view the past 11, 12 months. I think that there's a lot of stuff that's happened behind the scenes that we don't know about. And that knowledge will kind of change, uh, add context to how the whole thing is viewed. I think certainly there's a chance that people are going to wait, say, well, they got this deal now. They should have just taken that deal in October. And I think that that's a valid question uh, until there's a good answer. Uh, that to me, that, that would be the big thing is why wasn't this wrapped up sooner? And we might learn something about that topic specifically. SMU and San Diego State fans, I hear from a lot of them. What do you tell the SMU fan who who hasn't heard a lot from their university? It's been quiet on that front. Well, I think that I would tell the SMU fan that's good news because I'm sure the Pac-12 has told SMU, do not utter a peep about this or the deal is off. Uh, and it certainly will be interesting to see if if the – the leak of the the Pac-12 visit to SMU's campus has had any kind of impact. I, I happen to think that leak came from SMU uh, and not the Pac-12. But, you know, the no news is good news, I think, because if the deal, if there was no chance of SMU getting in, I'm sure that would have leaked out f- from their campus. I am uh, looking at 
the college football playoff expansion on the horizon. We've talked about unequal revenue sharing as it pertains to, um, you know, the the grant of rights. And give me an idea why unequal revenue sharing when it comes to the playoff. Why is that important in today's world? Well, you know, ideally, you'd probably be a super stable conference like the like the SEC or the Big Ten, and you would have you would have equal sharing of playoff revenue. But the Pac-12 has got to play the the cards it was dealt right. And to me, the way the conference is set to be configured, unequal sharing of, of college football playoff money it makes sense, right? It it will reward schools who have invested. It will motivate schools that haven't invested. Exactly how much or how they come up with a model in terms of the percentage of money, I don't know. But the the playoff is going to be worth so much money every year that every single of each one of those 12 slots is going to be worth tens of millions of dollars. How's the Pac-12 going to divvy that out? It should it should certainly reward the the participant to a greater. It shouldn't be cut one twelfth or one tenth. The participant should get, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of that money. There have been divisions in the Pac-12 over the years between the haves and the have-nots, and they've changed a little bit at different times depending on who's investing. And certainly Colorado is making a case for being a top half of the conference team, the way they're spending and investing in Coach Prime and all that. But um, Colorado's a bit of a lightning rod on my show, Wilner. How do you see season one for Coach Prime? The over-under in Vegas is four wins, sold-out season tickets, how are we going to measure success for for Colorado? I would say, see, I don't think success should be as, as much hype as there is. You know, a bowl game to me is is going to be tough, especially when you've got a non conference schedule that has what Nebraska and TCU, and I think Colorado State even. So they don't play, uh, you know, a cupcake. I think success for them is going to be four or five wins and being competitive. To me, they just the number one thing is avoid getting bombed every week, which is what happened last last season, right? If they're competitive and they win four or five games, I think everybody will look at that as a great stepping stone. And then in year two, you're talking about getting bowl eligible, maybe competing for the conference title. I don't know, but but they just need to be competitive this coming season. Do their do their games get circled on the calendar by opposing head coaches? Uh, not, not yet. We'll see what happens against TCU and Nebraska. It's possible. And then they got what? I think they play USC and Oregon both in yeah, September Oregon, as well. At Oregon in week four, USC at home in week five. So yeah, their so, first I mean, five are tough. Their first five are really tough. They could be one and four coming out of coming out of that stretch, uh, and still have played pretty darn well. But I don't think that they're circleable at this point, so to but speak. But you don't think like Maybe. Oregon and USC are tired of hearing about Coach Prime and the portal, and you know nah. uh, the recruiting part of this sort of is where that I think it stems from. Not the fan base, but does the coaching staff circle Colorado? Perhaps, but I don't know. I'm not sure that any of the coaches dislike Dion personally at this point, point. Uh, and I certainly think the players. Uh, are not going to get. Uh, I mean, the Oregon players are look. They're looking at SC and Utah and Washington, right? Mm-hmm. Those, those four schools. That those are the games that each of those four are circling: Washington, Oregon, Utah, USC. Any game between those four are are the ones that are going to get all the attention. We've been talking a lot about Colorado on the show. We've got several callers who think they're going to win. You know, some one caller thinks they're going to win the conference. Uh, others think that they're going to get boat raced. 
Um, I there's a there's no bigger question mark in the conference. But where are the other question marks for you when you you know program that could win or could be not bowl eligible? Um, do you have another team that is remotely near Colorado in that scale? Good question. I mean, the thing is, the fact that your listeners on a Portland-based show are talking about Colorado tells you all you need to know about the impact of the Deion Sanders hire. First of all, right? He's he's getting. I think he's making five and a half, six million his first year. He's already it's already paid for with all of the promotion that that Colorado has gotten from from that hire. In terms of questions, you know, I guess I would say uh, UCLA are they? You know, they were they were relevant this past year. Are they going to be relevant this season? Uh, you know, how, and just generally, how much are the LA? How impactful will the LA schools be? on the narrative of the conference in their last season for that's, that's one question I have for sure. Uh, I, I also wonder, can, can Oregon state keep it up? Right. I mean, I don't know that you need to win 10 games uh, to maintain your momentum, but the Beavers can't go back to like five and seven or four and eight. I don't think they will, but that's certainly, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how they react coming off of that, that great season. John Wilner, you're the best. Uh, for those who want more of this conversation, you can subscribe to the Konzano and Wilner podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcast. Wilner, thank you for giving us your time. I appreciate you, man. Thanks, my friend. Colorado over and under four wins. Steven says five. I say four. <laughs> we're not that far apart. It's like this big argument we're having over Colorado. I'm at three or four. Can't decide yet. I need to see uh, hear a little bit more. But uh, John Wilner saying that coaches will not circle Colorado on the uh, on the calendar, um, probably because they haven't demonstrated they're great. I I disagree a little bit. I've heard a little grumbling with coaches who are recruiting against Colorado, maybe a little weary of hearing about Colorado. I don't know. Leave it here. You got the bald faced truth. Punch it audio and the big splash are coming up. Well, the fans in Oakland uh, were not happy, obviously, with John Fisher, the A's owner. Not happy at all. Last uh, last night, big uh, protest uh, moment at their game in which the fans uh, stood in silence uh, in the uh, beginning of the fifth inning and then began chanting, sell the team in the fifth inning. Um, reverse boycott, they called it. I don't know if this is an effective way to get back at the owner, but it made some noise. Pitcher had to call timeout, check his earpiece. He's swinging a fair ball inside the third base line, and Siri's going to turn and make his way to second, and he has notions about third. He'll put the brakes on as Seth gets it back in. You heard the uh, crowd go silent and now getting very loud at the Coliseum. Walls would now stand in for Tampa Bay. Rays trying to open the scoring, and uh, Hogan can't hear with the pitch calm because of the crowd. And now time has called. Things have gotten loud here, and this is certainly a new experience in 2023 at the Coliseum. The Coliseum had noise, it had life, it had angry fans. They uh, threw things onto the field at the end of the game. All that was cleaned up, but uh, reverse protest by the A's. You know what I le- I started thinking about? I started thinking about Seattle. I started thinking about the Sonics. I started thinking about the 
the Clay Bennett effort, which was kind of crappy. I mean, it was crappy. Let's just say it. Uh, you know, let's not use weak language. Just it was crappy for Clay Bennett and his ownership group to take the Sonics and rip them out of Seattle, take them away from so many fans, and uh, it was a uh, it was bad. I mean, it was bad in a number of ways, and it triggered me a little bit. Maybe kind of glad that it's not Portland. I don't, I don't know if that sounds weird. Maybe glad that it's not Portland trying to take the A's out of Oakland, that it's Las Vegas. You know, in the end, you probably don't want someone else's team unless you can really point to that city and go, hey, they blew it. Like, they they didn't want the team. They dropped the ball. Because I, I feel for the fans in Oakland. Like, I grew up in the Bay Area. I feel for the fans in the East Bay who grew up as A's fans, especially fans who were, uh, you know, in lockstep with the A's in 1988, 89, Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire, Bay Bridge Series, Tony La Russa, Dave Stewart, really good A's teams, and especially the fans maybe from the 1970s, Reggie Jackson, Raleigh Fingers, Catfish Hunter, Joe Rudy, um, so many, uh, you know, Ray Fossey behind the plate. There were so many good memories of this franchise and what they represented in the Bay Area and how they owned the East Bay Area, and now um, John Fisher doing what a lot of owners and ownership groups in today's world do, the valuing the dollar over the brand, valuing uh, you know, getting the team out of Oakland, getting a new stadium, getting some sucker to pay for it for him. And you know, you know what's going to happen. I mean, the minute they get that stadium built and they get any kind of trajectory in, in Las Vegas, he's going to turn around and he's going to try to sell the team. And he, and he will sell the team. And he'll sell it for more than he could sell it for in Oakland. But not very holistic. Not very nice, John Fisher. And I'm glad you're not Portland's Major League Baseball hope in the end. Because, you know, Clay Bennett ripped the Sonics out of Seattle. He needed an assist from David Stern. And I am left thinking about Rob Manfred, the Major League Baseball commissioner, who took the A's out of Oakland, took that last sports franchise out of Oakland, and sent it on its way to Vegas. And, you know, I, my hope is that, you know, the A's, I, I had kind of hoped would they reverse field, would Vegas decide they weren't going to build that stadium, give the A's all those subsidies and all that money, and, you know, essentially build them a stadium. And, you know, maybe they'd come to their senses, but after all, it is Vegas. But I am left thinking, like, what about Vegas? Like, I, I spend time in Las Vegas, you know. I, I'm not going to see Carrot Top or the Blue Man Group. And that's kind of where the A's are going to sit kind of in the hierarchy of Las Vegas entertainment acts. They're not the Raiders. They're not the Golden Knights, certainly. They're not going to be the NBA when the NBA gets there. It's not going to even be like David Copperfield or maybe, uh, you know, a, a musical act like Usher who, you know, or Sebastian Maniscalco who I'd go see in a heartbeat. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the minority. There has to be a reason why the Blue Man Group and Carrot Top and the Thunder from Down Under do well. Somebody's going to see them. Maybe somebody will go to see the A's when they're in Vegas. But, Stephen, it bothered me to see that scene. It reminded me of the sadness around Seattle when the Sonics left. It is sad. That, like, that was the, the main takeaway for me is just what a sad situation because you can tell that those fans, you know, they love it, and they love the A's, and you, you see those diehards coming out, and they know just inevitably, like, they're going to Vegas. Like that's just kind of what it's the right in the wall is. It's just it's, it's sad that they have to do it this way. They're trying their best to keep them in Oakland, but it's not going to work. You know, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on you, John. I think 
I don't they they obviously won't be as popular as the Raiders in Vegas. But I do feel like the Golden Knights, their success and the Aces success in the WNBA, like I feel like the locals in Vegas are going to mm. support the baseball team. Like they they've gone out and they've supported the WNBA team and the hockey team where I think the Raiders are more like, you know what? My team's coming in to Vegas. They're playing the Raiders. I want to come visit my team from out of town and watch that road game where I think the locals down in Vegas will still support the A's more than just like, you know, someone like you or me who's visiting Vegas. I don't think it's meant to be, you know, hey, you know, the Giants are playing in Vegas. John, you want to go watch the Giants play Vegas? I think it's more just like, you know what? It's something different for a local down there that lives there that doesn't want to go on the strip and be all, you know, part of the Las Vegas lifestyle. The A's worked with a firm called CSL International. They're a marketing group that surveyed 17,000 people in Las Vegas, mostly in southern Nevada. They did they did survey some tourists. They did reach out to some A's season ticket holders and some other fans in the American League West, and they determined that it was going to be better than expected. I I'm looking at it, and I'm having a hard time with it because there's so much going on in Las Vegas. And, Stephen, like, okay, I'll debate you on this. Like, you go to Vegas, and I say to you, hey, Stephen, give me three hours of your time. Let's go see, you know, the A's play a baseball game. Is that going to win over you going to the sports book, going to the casino, going to a Vegas show, going to dinner? Like, I think there's a lot of competition there, and I, I almost feel like baseball, the way baseball should win is by going to underserved markets, not overserved markets like Vegas, but the study says otherwise. It, it agrees with you. But don't you think that the people that live there, like, that's what I think it's built for, is the people that live there, and they've shown support for these lesser teams already, you know, Golden Knights, like I said, the Aces, they have good showings. I think, like, the locals in Vegas are going to love the A's more than the tourists, because you're Mm -hmm. right, like, if I'm going to Vegas, I'm not going to watch a baseball game. I've been down to Vegas during the NBA Summer League. You know what I didn't think of doing? Going to go watch NBA Summer League because I didn't want to watch those guys play. <laughs> I wanted to sit by the pool, sit by the sports book, yeah. and just hang out and relax. Like I'm not going to see, you know, the you know, the lesser competition. So I don't think it's meant for somebody like me, but I think someone that lives down in Vegas and is there all the time, I think that they will support it. Like they've shown that they will come out to these smaller teams and really Maybe. support. So I think baseball falls in the same type of category. Tough ticket. The Golden Knights are a tough ticket. You can't argue with that. They have they've adopted hockey in Vegas. Like it's evident, right? We know that. The Raiders have done well, but the NFL I think is different. You know, again, I think you can be a tourist and go there, you know, go there to see your team. If you're a Cowboys fan and you're living in the Pacific Northwest, I guess you could wait for the Cowboys to go to Seattle and see them there. But if they're in Vegas, you think about it. And I think, you know, Vikings fans, Niners fans, anybody who goes to play the Raiders in Vegas thinks about it. But, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it's a different crowd. Maybe it's not just the, you know, the transient visitor to Vegas who's going, you know, can I see a show? And one of the things that, like, the casinos want to do to you is, right, they don't want you to leave the casino. So I kind of wondered, like, even with, you know, the ballpark being – Close enough to Raider, Raiders Allegiant Stadium and the Golden Knights T-Mobile Arena, like close enough to form kind of a sports entertainment triangle, you're still having to leave the casino. And I got to be honest with you, like I go to Cosmo or wherever we go, I I'm not trying to get out of that casino unless I have to. Well, especially during you know? the summer, especially during the summertime <laughs> when it's 112 out there, you know, and you're just sweating, just like crazy. You got to get inside the building. I'm with you on that one. But so why didn't they, 
you know, the place where they want to put this, you know, I almost would have made more sense to me if it were 10 miles off the strip, you know, far enough away where you go, okay, like people who live in the Vegas area and don't want to deal with the strip will go to the games, but you can't get that far away because you know that uh, like an important stripe of this is tourism and the taxes they're going to create from the tickets and you know damn well they're going to build a casino within the ballpark when they build this thing. So yeah, and, I think it'd be really interesting to and see. And I think with it being so close, they want it. You know, so you go to the game. In theory, if you are a tourist, you're going to the game. Then you're heading up back to the casinos right after the game, right? And you're going to the bars and you're drinking and partying and having fun. So I, I think you're right. Like I think in theory, it sounds great to have it ten miles away, but they can't do that. Like you just can't do that if you're in Vegas because all that stuff is just right there on top of each other. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Must be the Big Splash. Well, the A's took a step towards that Las Vegas uh, defection that we've been talking about. The Nevada Senate approved $380 million in public funding for a stadium. Uh, On the Strip, it was approved by the Senate during a special session yesterday. Vote was 12-7. The bill was not advanced uh, in the normal legislative session that ended last week. But uh, to be clear, this does not mean the A's are now moving to Vegas officially, but it does clear the first legislative hurdle for for the ballpark. The funding bill now goes to the Nevada Assembly, which uh, met earlier today, and if it proved, then it'll go to the governor, and uh, the governor, who has supported the A's, is expected to sign the bill. If it happens, they'll still need to secure $1.2 million in funding, which they can do uh, with the approval of the other Major League Baseball owners. Coming up, Tom Crean, former Marquette and Indiana coach, will be joining us to talk college basketball. I like to have good conversations about tricky topics. I'm not talking about the bird here off, that I talked about off the top of the show. But I, I like to get in conversations with people who are experts in their field. And I like to pick their brains about what they see happening, especially if they've been at it a long time and endured changes. Uh, Tom Crean fits in that category. Former head coach at Marquette, where he coached uh, a whole bunch of great players and Took a team to the Final Four. Dwayne Wade, Wesley Matthews, Blazer fans, you remember that. Went on to coach at Indiana. Then Georgia. His father-in-law, by the way, Jack Harbaugh. Ring a bell? That means the in-laws are the Harbaugh's. We have so much to talk about with Tom Crean, but I, I want to know like, what he sees in college basketball. He's fresh off a stint at Georgia. Now he's looking at a game that includes NIL, transfer portal, all that. How complicated does it look for a guy who has probably endured a lot of change in the NCAA and changes in the game, changes in kids, for crying out loud? Tom Crean joining us. Where are you today, Coach? Uh, it's good to be with you, John. I live in Florida. I live just outside of uh, Sarasota, Florida, in Lakewood Ranch, Florida, so that's where I'm at. All right, so we're looking at – the landscape of basketball and I'm watching the portal, you know, thousand kids jump into the portal at the end of the year. And I'm going, man, the coaches must be losing their minds or having, you know, adjust or die, I guess. But what do you see when you look at sort of how basketball, college basketball has changed? 
You know what I think? I think in many cases, it, there's no question that over time, uh, kids change. Everybody changes, right? I mean, it's just part of life. And uh, whether we're parents, whether we're coaches, whether we're players, whatever whatever you're doing, it's 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 going to change. But I think the one thing that's hurt for players in so many cases coming up the ladder is the expectations for the players and the expectations of of how hard you have to work, what you have to get better at, how committed you have to be to being a teammate, uh, certainly dealing with adversity. You know, one of the things that I thought was really, really important in recruiting, and I always wasn't smart enough maybe to or didn't really realize this when I first started out, but you really start to look at in your recruit at your recruits and see, okay, who's actually had some responsibility? You're not, not taking the last shot in the game or being the cleanup hitter on the baseball team, but like who had some responsibility at a young age? Who's had to be involved in some type of sacrifice? And so many times sacrifice is viewed as like a four-letter word where it's really just part of life. And and the problem is is so many things hold people back uh, from being successful, and a lot of times it's the demands that you put on them. And I think what happens when you get into college, a lot of times people are not used to uh, the expectations that are now there to 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 do it every day to to go through that adversity to to be a great teammate to it's just it's it's getting harder it's getting harder all the way across the board and I think that's that's got a lot to do with it and then you throw in the fact with the NIL like you mentioned you throw in the fact that it is so easy to leave and go somewhere else and it and it kind of takes away unless you're unless you're really Unless you're really ingrained in it, it, it's really easy to take your fight away. And instead of having to fight through something, you say, you know what, I'll go somewhere else. But the problem is, you know, and, and this is where research gets so poor, I think, when people make decisions and, and who they take in transfers and, and, and when kids go to different schools. there does It doesn't mean that you're going to be held to any higher standard or get any better uh, coaching or training or individual improvement when you go to another school, just like it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that those problems you might have had back at your other school in the locker room, those things are going to follow you along to the next school. And there's it's so fast right now that there's so little research being done, and I think that hurts decisions on both ends. That's a great point. I I was talking to Dana Altman, the Oregon coach, about you know he had a hard he had a hard discussion with a young player. Player said, Coach, I want to play in the NBA like Peyton Pritchard. And Dana said, Well, you know, you got to get up at six o'clock in the morning, get into the gym. You got to do the weight training. You got to do the nutrition. Then you got to show up to practice. Then after practice, you need to stay late and shoot. And the kid nodded and then jumped in the portal. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to do that. I want somebody to tell me. Uh, how to do it, but uh, I, I don't want it to sound that hard. Can you be honest with kids, or do you have to be careful now? I don't. I don't think you can stop. I really don't because I, I think yes, you have to be tactful. Yes, you have to figure out different ways to say it. You've got to continue to use uh, examples. You've got to show video. You know, you name it. We could talk for an hour about the different ways you got to get it across. But at the end of the day, if you're not telling the truth there's going to be losers all the way across the board. You're going to lose. The person's going to lose. I, I think it's almost like this now. And I never had any one-and-dones until I got to Georgia. And I think I learned that, like, when you get somebody, like Cody Zeller was our first, when you get somebody that you know you're not going to have very long, you've got to speed the process up. 
it's it's not a normal process anymore. Our, our player development has always been about you know getting people better, getting them comfortable, being obsessed with their weaknesses in the sense of if, if they couldn't go left, they were going to work really hard on going left or dropping the right shoulder, whatever it was. Well, now when you get somebody you know you're not going to have very long, you've got to speed that process up. And you can't go too fast, but you've got to go faster than you might like. And I think almost now, John, that's what it's like coaching. I think you've got to almost treat every player that you get inside your program, you may actually only have them one year. You may only actually have them two years. And you've got to give them every opportunity to get better, whether they want it or not. Because at the end of the day, it, it, they, you may do a great job with them, and there may be some crazy reason that you would have never thought of that they left. And and there's so many stories right now with the with with the better players. And the scariest thing that's going on with name, image, and likeness in the transfer portal is when you're a solid player or a good player, not even a, a great player. And certainly, if you're a prospect, you know where somebody sees that upside in you. There's potentially people shopping you to another school long before that season ends. Or, and long before it might be three weeks, long before it might be three months. And for people to think that the players don't know that that's going on, that they're living in some vacuum, that somebody's just out there making calls to see if they can get a better NIL deal somewhere, or the agent's calling, and, 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 or the, somebody in the family is calling, it's crazy to think that that's not happening. And so what happens is that starts to just distract the player, which in turn is going to distract the team. So if you're not completely focused in on every day, getting the most out of that player to make them better, you really don't have a chance. You don't have a chance to win. You don't have a chance to keep them at the end of the day because the person that doesn't want to work, you really don't want them anyways. I mean, that's what people forget. The portal is a two-way street. But the bottom line is you've got to, you've got to push players – right now, maybe even more than they want to, because you've got to be able to help them understand what it's going to take. And if they leave, hopefully the seeds that you've planted in them carry on where, where else they go. And hopefully when you get somebody else in place, that they had an idea of what a work ethic was all about. Because at the end of the day, as much as this changes, John, and there's a lot of different styles of play, still what matters, you know, winning hasn't changed. You've got to be fundamentally sound. You've got to be tough. Uh, you've got to be able to be a teammate. You've got to be able, in the, in the case of basketball, you've got to be able to shoot the ball. You've got to be able to rebound the ball. You've got to be able to talk on defense. All those different things, none of that's changed, no matter what happens with NIL or with the portal. So the more that you can emphasize that on a daily basis, you give yourself and you give those players a fighting chance. Tom Crean is our guest, former Marquette, Indiana, Georgia head coach. More than 400 wins, a, a Final Four appearance. Um, you know, we in the tournament, this last tournament, we watched maybe some teams that had some continuity, had some upperclassmen go deeper into the tournament than expected. How important is age and experience compared to talent when you're talking about the Power Five level? Well, I think it's I think it's big, but I think the bottom line is this. If you're taking kids in the portal and, and they're older and they have a set way on doing things and they don't want to buy in and learn uh, what you're doing, if, if, if they've been in an environment where they've not been pushed, they've not been driven, maybe where the style of play is completely different, it can almost set you back. Because the one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to sign independent contractors. 
And it's really easy to look at all these situations now with NIL and the portal in that way. But, but you've got to get people that have still been raised to a degree on team, on fundamental basketball. And that's why UConn was such a great example. They've had some homegrown guys that they've built up. They went into the portal. They got a guy like Nahim Aline, who was extremely well coached at Virginia Tech. I know he's left to go to St. John's, but he was extremely well coached. Hassan Diara transferred from Texas A&M. He was extremely well coached. Joey Calcaterra coming from the West Coast. At one point in time, I was doing television throughout the season for ESPN. At one point in time, Joy was shooting 57% from three coming off the bench. Like, they really hit it well. But I think the number one reason teams like UConn won, uh, one reason Florida Atlantic continued to, to get better throughout the season and win, one thing that I think was pretty apparent with Miami, those teams got better during the year. And if you really look at it, and, that, and that's what I spend a lot of my time doing now, you know, with learning, preparing, you know, some of it's in the TV vein, but I want to get better as a coach every day. So you study these teams, you study the draft, and you see who's getting guys better and you see who's not. And the teams that can improve throughout the season have got the best chance. You know, things have to go right with injuries and all those different things, but the teams that can continue to improve they're giving themselves a chance to play in to March. And I think that no matter how you're recruiting, you've got to be able to make your team better during the season. Yeah, it's hard for me to compare kind of what you did at Marquette because you did it at a time when you didn't have the portal. But certainly you had guys like Dwayne Wade and Wesley Matthews who were fantastic players. What went right at Marquette for you? I was there. I covered that Final Four, and it was special. What went right, and we had our Final Four reunion this past year. So this past August, we had one, and then they honored the team during the season. That team, that team grew so close because, because they, they grew to the point they wanted to see each other be successful. They could forgive each other when something went wrong. Uh, they got along. It wasn't like they didn't fight, it, it, but it didn't last. It didn't linger. There, there weren't hard feelings that continued on. It was just like any other Team. And I think what happened is that set the, the tone for us in, in recruiting is we built it up like get guys that, that, that it, it's not about do they fit a certain metric, do they have a certain size. It's about will they compete, do they want to be teammates, uh, do they have an open mind to getting better. I mean, certainly you have to have skill set, but that stuff is so important. I mean, Wesley Matthews was the starting guard with a, with a young man named Jarrell McNeil and Dominique James. We were picked to finish 12th in the league, I think, that first year in the Big East. We had Steve Novak, who played 11 years in the NBA. He was a senior. That team finished fourth in the league, got a first-round bye in the Big East, and we started three freshmen all year. Wesley missed a, just a couple of weeks with an injury. But that team learned the hard way what, what, what was going to be needed physically to win in that league but it already had this high level of competitiveness. It had this desire to see each other be successful, and, and, and they wanted to prove something. They didn't want to just prove that they were individually the best. They wanted to prove that they could do something together. And I think we had a lot of group guys at Marquette that were excellent teammates. And we had the same thing at Indiana in many cases after we were able to build it up again. Those guys wanted to be successful but they also wanted to see their teammates be successful. And that's such a huge ingredient if you're going to keep winning 
in any type of program or in any type of season. I, I thought it was really interesting just a couple of years ago that, you know, you saw some programs that really struggled and it was amid you, you basically had a recruiting cycle where you were having to recruit via Zoom. How hard was it to mm-hmm. kind of gauge whether, you know, you talked about those guys that want to be part of a team, want to want want their teammates to be successful. How hard was it to gauge that stuff when you couldn't get face-to-face or see them play? Well, it hurt us. It hurt, it hurt me at Georgia big time. We're coming off my second year. Um, we we'd set For two years in a row, we set the attendance record at Georgia. We had Anthony Edwards our second year. Uh, we had just uh, won the first game in the SEC tournament, and then everything got shut down the next night. And so we went two recruiting periods where it was basically nobody on campus and all just recruiting through Zoom. And you, there's just no way. And I love studying videotape and would study it, you know, morning, noon, and night, but it just doesn't do the justice to getting to know somebody, watching them uh with their team, watching them when it's going right, watching them when it's not going right, watching them on the bench, getting a chance, maybe not only if you can get in their home, great, but to see them in school, to get around, you know, how they learn, how they pick things up, how they interact with others, sometimes just to go in there and observe. And, you know, that's one of the greatest things about the evaluations when you get to go watch people off campus is is just – just watch how they are. I mean, just watch how they are with the refs, the assistant coaches, the guys on the bench, what's their body language like, you know, all those different things. But really getting to know somebody and then getting them on your campus where you can spend time with them and, and sit there, it wasn't even close. I mean, it, 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 it was hard. And I think that's one of the things you're seeing across the country. That's one of the reasons there's been so much transferring and things of that nature, because there were mistakes made on both people's parts. There just wasn't the connections and the fits that you needed to have. And that's what I get most fearful of moving forward now is that, that you got to try to get to know somebody, and it's so hard. You've got to be able to look at, is this person open-minded enough to change? Because because if you're not willing and, and don't have a desire to, to to get better and to buy into the changes that you have to make and to put the work behind it, you're not going to be successful. And and it's it's that way in any walk of life, but it's certainly that way for 18 to 22-year-olds in college sports. Did you ever recruit a kid you thought, extremely talented kid, but I'm just not going to take him. I don't like his body language, or I don't like I don't like how he talks to his coach or his teachers. I got off a kid one time that ended up being a really good NBA player because I didn't like the way he talked to his mother. I mean, it, it, I was raised by my mom, so, like, it embarrassed mm-hmm. me how he talked to his mother. And was I wrong? I wasn't wrong in my mind at the time. Did the person yeah. end up having a good career? He absolutely did. But, oh, there's no question. There's no question. You Every time, and I tell, I've got two guys that are at Oregon now, and Brian Fish and Chuck Martin that worked with me either at, at Indiana or at, at – uh, uh, Georgia. I mean, so they've heard it. All the other coaches have have always heard me say this. When you get away from trusting your instincts, you know, and Tony LaRusso has got a great line about instincts. He said, instincts are an informed feel. So like when you're doing this, like if you are really, really studying what you do and you've got a feel on it and, and, and you get away from that, I am, I am batting about uh, 150. On, on my instincts when not or my instincts being wrong mm. and somebody really turning out to be good. Yeah. And, and it took a lot of work to get to those places. But I think that's what happens. And, 
you got to trust your instincts. Sometimes you're going to be wrong. Sometimes you're going to be right. But you got to do everything you can do to trust it based on what is most important for you. And and I think that's that's crucial. Tom Crane, our guest, uh, took Marquette to the Final Four. He's been at Indiana, Georgia, assistant coach at Michigan State with Tom Izzo. Uh, Judd Heathcote as well. But let, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of parents who listen to the show whose kids are playing club, and, you know, the messaging is you got to play year-round. You need to play a bunch of games. You need a you need private training. You need a strength coach. What do you say to that? I think you need a little bit of everything. I'll, I'll use basketball as an example. If you're going to have a personal trainer, which is there's nothing wrong with that. There's some excellent trainers. Well, if I'm a parent, here's what I'm finding out. I'm finding out what are they doing not only for their strength training, what are they doing for their athletic ability? What are they doing for their flexibility? What's the plan for their feet and ankle? Okay, what are they, what are they doing to make sure they have lower body and hip mobility, shoulder flexibility? What are they doing to make their hands quicker? You know, all those different things, no matter what sport you are, they're all the same. You've got to have that, that quick twitch, and it's not always about – it's natural, or this is what this person has. You've got to have people that will help build your athleticism. And I think that is so important. And then in the personal training aspect, it's not just about what your son or daughter do with the basketball, okay? Or just, it's not just about that. It's about can they move without the ball? Do they understand putting, okay? Those are the kind of things that are, that are crucial. Can they move their feet, do they open up every time somebody starts to drive them? Uh, can they drive into a gap and not turn the ball over because they dribbled the ball so softly? And, and, and this is a huge one, John. And, 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 and looking at the draft and, and looking at there's going to be kids that are going to go in the top ten that they really can't play on the other side of their body. They're so right-hand oriented or they're so one side of their body oriented that the first time you put that ball in the left hand, and they've got to go make a finish or they've got to go into traffic, it's not even close. And I think it's, it's like finding people that will teach them how to be complete players. I, I've never been a believer in year-round uh, for one sport. I think you can look around the NFL and see the numbers that are there. You've probably seen them in the past. I mean, they're in the, the, the high 80s, uh, mid-80s, somewhere on people that played multiple sports in high school. And I just think it's crucial that you get, to me, it's the athletic training a lot of times, more so than just the basketball skill development. But being in an area, because because ultimately for people, especially for high school kids to get recruited the way this portal is, you've got to be able to play the game, okay? It's not just about, you might be a great shooter, okay? So you could get recruited or be on your team because you're a great shooter. There's always going to be room for those people, but more often than not, you've got to have multiple skills. You've got to be able to play both ends of the court. You've got to be able to rebound it with two hands. You've got to be able to be physical. You've got to be able to do two things at once. You've got to be able to play, again, I say it, you've got to be able to play on both sides of your body. You've got to be able to drop your left shoulder to go right, drop your right shoulder to go left. You've got to have all that. And I think there's too much isolation skill on what you do with the ball, strength training skill to get stronger, okay, and not enough well-versed, all-around, all-encompassing type of development, especially for the kids that are preteen and young teen. It's just crucial that they get that kind of development, and 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 that's how they're gonna that's how they're gonna gain confidence, 
I mean, think about this. So many guys went back to college this year or, or, or that thought they were going to go in the draft or may be in the draft now and aren't going to get drafted that are big guys. They can't handle the ball. Okay, maybe they can shoot. Maybe they can't. They struggle, struggle making passes, especially off the dribble. But most importantly, they can't guard smaller people. They can't guard quickness. And so much of it is not just technique. So much of it is athletic training. And it's being able to move your feet and play in a short space and do all the things that, that make a difference. And so parents have got to be really locked into, is my son or daughter, are they actually getting trained on numerous things that a lot of times don't have everything to do with the ball? People may not know, uh, Tom Crean, our guest, is married to Joni, who is a Harbaugh. Uh, you mm-hmm. met her when you were at Western. one by far. <laughs> You met her when you were at Western Western Kentucky. Her dad, legendary. Brothers, obviously, at Thanksgiving. You guys are talking about coaching and whatnot. But what is that like? What was that like for you, dating her and then, you know, married and you're introduced to the rest of the family? Well, the dating dating part, it went through stages, right? Like the first time you're nervous (laughs) because her dad's there. He's the coach at Western Kentucky, and I don't want to make him mad, and I don't want to do the wrong thing. And so you go through that. And then I met John and Jim basically at the, at the same time when John ended up getting married to his wife, Ingrid. They got married in Cincinnati, and I met him, and then I met Jim. John was a lot easier uh, to convince than Jim. You know, Jim, Jim was always – John was always Joni's protector. Jim was probably always the instigator that when push came to shove, Jim was going to make sure that he took care of of his sister. They both did. They're both unbelievable brother-in-laws and been, you know, great to be in that family. But those were nerve wracking days because, because especially growing up in Michigan, you know who Jim Harbaugh is. And so um, I was very conscious of that, but we've grown through all of that. We've been married 30 years now since May 29th and it's an incredible family to be in, but those guys are such great leaders. And, and you talk about guys that have a pulse, of their team. They have an ability to deal with all kinds of different people, all kinds of different situations, but they never let what wins and what's most important to winning drop. They don't let it drop with the coaches. They don't let it drop with the players. They don't let it drop in the organizations. At one point it probably cost Jim his job at San Francisco because he was so adamant about what it would take and what kind of players were needed to be successful and and what kind of organization and 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 transparency you had to have to have that like those guys are so good at that and i've learned so much from being in that family or being in this family i should say yeah you, i i think college basketball needs you I, I you know i keep thinking like would tom crean ever take a you know assistant job in the nba and do what some other guys have done i know kelvin sampson did that and then went back to college but i think the college game needs you you, you want to coach again Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just want to get – I think I want to get in the right situation. I mean, it's just – you have to you have to be supported, right? Like, it, you just have to be. And I, I think there's a lot of things I'd like to do over from being at Georgia. You know, COVID was certainly part of that. Having an athletic director, you've got to be lockstep and barrel with them. And, and you've got to go through things. I mean, we were in a more of a rebuild there, I think, than I realized, than anybody else realized. And the athletic director – decides he's going to retire, you know, after two years. And when you get in those type of situations, it's really rough. I think so for me, I want to get into a situation where the support is there, where it's administratively 
together and, and where they, they care about winning and where it's, it's uh, and now I think because of the NIL, you know, where there's a chance to have the support and, and that, that it's going to, and then it's going to end up right, right? Not a, a place for NIL where you make all these promises that never get handled. I, I was talking to a guy uh, mid-major level, he lost players that probably were close to guarantee or offered a million dollars. Uh, when you look at all the players and you combine all the money uh, when they left and when, when it was all said and done at the end of the year, they didn't get half of that. In fact, I mean, the scariest thing is uh, people look at it being pay for play. Sometimes you don't get paid if you don't play. And, and that's the scary part of college sports right now that you've got to work through. And in a sense of like, okay, all of a sudden, one of these kids wasn't playing uh, anymore, wasn't playing as much anymore. His money was gone. You know, like that type wow. of stuff. I don't want to be in that environment. I want to I, I keep looking at it. I enjoy the television. I enjoy the learning and getting better at every day. But there's no question I want to coach again. we got to get you in the Pac-12. I miss the daily. Yeah, I'd like to see you in like the Pac-12. The Pac-12 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I think you do well yeah. there, Tom Crean. Thank you. You're spitting truth. Uh, I appreciate you coming on with us. We'll bring you back on when the season approaches. Anytime. I appreciate it, John. You're doing a great right. job with that. You got a lot of respect and throughout the country, and certainly with what you're doing with your writing and and, and in that area. So thank you for having me. Thanks, Coach. Appreciate that, Tom Crean. There he is, uh, former assistant, longtime assistant at Michigan State. He was there. I was covering the Big Ten in 1998-99. He was on Tom Izzo's staff. You may remember Mateen Cleaves and those teams that uh, went went a long way. He ended up at Marquette, took a team to the Final Four. It was fun to see him take that team on a ride with Dwayne Wade and later Indiana, then Georgia and the SEC. If you missed any of that interview, grab the podcast. A lot of truth there. Leave it here. Really good stuff with Tom Crean, former Indiana Marquette, Georgia head basketball coach and uh loved, loved him talking about the harbaugh family starts dating his wife Joni in college her dad happens to be the head football coach and legendary at that um steven i want to unpack that a little bit i thought there was a lot of wisdom in there um i've known cream for a long time i i covered the big 10 in 98 99 when bobby knight was at indiana and when cream eventually ended up at indiana we kind of reconnected and uh, have stayed in touch with him over the years. But, you know, I have called upon him numerous times when I'm working on things or writing things and um, and uh, need just some depth to, to draw upon. And I thought he hit on something very early in that interview that is interesting. You have an NIL transfer portal system that incentivizes or rewards individuals. Right. There's you know, it's a selfish decision to jump in the portal. And I'm not I'm not like tainting that as like completely negative. You have to do what's best for yourself. But that's selfish by its nature. And so kids who are jumping into the portal, looking for more NIL money, leaving good situations may not be the kinds of kids who are happy for their teammates and happy to be part of something bigger than themselves. Like, you know, there's there's a conflict there. Well, he's a. You can tell he's a culture guy, right? And I think that speaks so highly of what we've talked about with Oregon State football, where those guys seem to be, whether it's the coaching staff or the players, they're hanging in and they're going to stay with the culture, stay with the Beavers. And you're right because he's talking about that, you know, you don't necessarily want to just go out in the transfer portal and get these guys. It's not going to work. It's not going to work every time. It can work and it can work out great. 
But a lot of times it's not going to work because these guys are looking out for themselves and they're looking out to get as much money as possible. And it's not about the team. And especially in a game like basketball, John, like there's so many little things that you could do on the court besides scoring the basketball or rebounding the basketball that helps teams win. And he talked about that. Like people just don't necessarily do the things that are winning plays anymore. They're not cutting to the hoop. They're not making a good, you know, not boxing out. They're not doing the little things that help teams win. And when you're looking at NIL, everybody just wants the highest score or the guy who gets the most rebounds or the most assists. That's what matters. And I think for a guy like him to come out and say that, you know, with such a name in college basketball, I think that's great. Like to put that message out there, he's just spitting facts of like for young kids that are listening. If you're listening and want to be a basketball player, learn how to go left-handed. Learn how to cut to the hoop. Learn how to do the little things because these coaches do notice that, and those are the type of things that help you win basketball games. And also help you, you know, maybe play above your talent level because, you know, he was, again, talking about the NBA. Once you get to the NBA, you've seen it, it working for the Blazers. Like all of those guys are freaky athletes. And so if you, don't, if you aren't a complete player, uh, it's not good enough. At that level, or or maybe it's not good enough for you to be a draftable player at that level if you're not complete. And you know you can, you know you may have athleticism that limits you, but be the most complete player you can be. I just every time I hear good coaches talking about, hey, what makes a good team or what makes a good player, I always in the back of my mind sort of apply it to life, to like your family if you're a listener, yourself if you're a listener. You know, can can you be a complete person? Can you work? Are you willing to work on your weaknesses, or do you just get into the gym, so to speak, and and do the things that come natural and easy to you? And hey, I'm really good at that. I don't need to be good at the other things. I also thought it was interesting, Stephen, when you were talking about recruiting, and I asked him, you know, you know, have you ever seen a, recruited a player and not liked the way he talked to a teacher or didn't like his body language? He says there's an NBA player. He stopped recruiting because he didn't like the way the kid talked to his mom. And that's great. I, I love that. You know, show some respect for your parents and, you know, that kind of thing. I think it goes a long way. It's not that you can't win with those guys, you know, because basketball is different than off the court than on the court. But, like, you know, he, he at least has some type of standards and he holds it. It goes back to the whole culture thing, John. Like, I, I just love it. I love everything that he had to say in that interview. And you're talking about, you know, when it comes to the NBA, there's two things I took away from my time working working with the Blazers. And the first one is when I was asking their scouts what they think about shooting, it's they go, I think everybody can learn how to shoot. And I think that's what Tom Crean's talking about. If you want to put in the work, you can learn how to shoot basketball. If you're that good and that talented, everybody in the NBA is that talented. It's just, can you put in the work? And the second one is, can you adapt your role? Because your whole life, you've been the best player on your high school team, your college team. Now you're going to come to the NBA and be a role player. Can you change the way you play? It's the hardest thing to judge. And Tom Green hit on both of those things. Like that, That's what everyone's looking for. And I, I just would love it. I would love to see him, like you said, in the Pac-12 coaching somewhere so I can uh, be watching him night in, night out coaching. This afternoon, a little bit of a bombshell dropped. His Oregon State uh, assistant coach, Tim Shelton, resigned. He apparently resigned on Friday. Uh, he had been with Oregon State just uh, since May of 2022. Uh, Tim Shelton is the son of Lonnie Shelton, Oregon State great, but Tim Shelton resigned. I guess you know it's not unusual, but it was the it was the reason he gave that caught everyone's attention. He um, he said he cited the lack of an NIL presence at Oregon State for him leaving. He said that the current roster of players at Oregon State is uh, it's not the type to have their hand out looking for NIL money. But he said that uh, he's competing against other schools. The competition is real. He said it's about retention. 
He said, uh, you know, maybe we didn't get those kids because of money, but we need we need to be able to retain them. He said he believes in Oregon State's leadership, but um, he said, quote, you're like, man, are we going to get lapped before we can get in the race? I don't think Oregon State's never going to do it. Maybe it's not even as bad as I'm saying. Maybe I'm saying from the perspective of, as a young coach for the majority of my career, this is what I'm going to have to navigate to be successful. But he's basically pointing at Oregon State's NIL collective and saying they're not doing enough. We can't compete. Meanwhile, Oregon State has issued a statement. Uh, Oregon State uh, AD Scott Barnes said, quote, we are aware of outgoing assistant coach uh, Tim Shelton's move to Colorado State. That said, we disagree with his sentiments regarding NIL as it pertains to Oregon State and the ongoing efforts made in this space. Um, they, uh, Barnes goes on to say that Oregon State has some dialogue with state legislatures and the NCAA. Wayne Tinkle, the coach at Oregon State, who ultimately is going to be the guy who ends up holding the bill if the collective isn't doing its job, he said, quote, we know our administration and collectives are working hard and they've done a lot to bring our NIL initiatives a long ways to take care of our current student-athletes and to help us on the recruiting trail. Um, end quote, uh, you know, it goes on to say, hey, we're doing everything we can do, blah, blah, blah. But um, really interesting movement there. And, look, I'm looking at Oregon State basketball. They needed a big off season. I don't really think they got it. And, but what they did do is they retained Jordan Pope, who a lot of people thought might jump in the portal and leave. So I want to give them that. Like, they've held on to Pope to this point, best freshman in the conference. So I want to give a little bit of credit to Oregon State. But, I, I you know, Shelton's right. You're not – they're not making hay in the portal right now. Can they win without making hay there? Well, and they, speaking of that, they kept Jordan Pope, great player, but they did lose Glenn Taylor Jr., who was one of their other better players, averaged over 11 points a game as a sophomore. Like, they lost those guys. They lost Deshaun Davis, their point guard of the year before, who was, you know, 10 points, 5 assists to Mississippi State. It, it's not the first time they've lost these guys, and I, I think it's going to be tough for Oregon State. That's got, If you're an Oregon State basketball fan, you hate to hear that Tim Shelton leaves and he's citing because of NIL. Like, it just seems like any time a good Oregon State player is going to pop through, he's going to leave them. And you, you're not going to win, especially in the Pac-12 the way it is. I mean, you got to invest in basketball. You're going to have to invest some money. And if they're not going to do it, they're not going to win. Yeah, and I, I think Oregon State facing a really important season with Wayne Tinkle. And, and uh, you know, last season, of course, I think the only reason that, you know, he came back was – they owed him. They owed him too much money, right? Like this, it was just it was uh, an abysmal season last year. They've got to do better than, you know, eleven and twenty-one. They were three and twenty-eight the year before. Um, big step forward this next season, or it could get ugly at Oregon State. Leave it here. Punch it audio still ahead. Five at five coming up top of the hour. What are the five biggest stories as Anna sees them? Is the Blue Jay back in the backyard? I really felt that I brought that story full circle in the opening segment. If you missed it, uh, Blue Jay in the backyard, what do you do? I don't know what to do. Do you just leave it? It's on the ground? Fledgling Blue Jay? Looks helpless? I don't know. Well, I called the Audubon Society. And uh, kind of felt like I was uh, like one of those security guards in the parking lot of a uh, of one of those stopping shops, uh, you know, quick stop, whatever. And I was kind of an expert on birds for like, uh, you know, 30 seconds. I was like Kramer 
an expert on whales. I am a marine bio- uh, biologist, George Costanza, all that. Uh, coming up, we will have the five at five, top of the hour. In the meantime, let's play some punch it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with Cam Whitmore. Blazers worked him out today. 6'7 wing from Villanova. He's projected as a top five pick, maybe fourth, maybe fifth, maybe third. Cam Whitmore says he imagined playing for the Blazers. Punch it. I mean, he has the ball most of the time, so I mean, he's then again a facilitator also. So me playing off ball on the wing and him, you know, making moves and everybody's double teaming him, getting a lot of attention. So I mean, he can facilitate, make and get other people involved also. So I mean, I definitely fit in that uh, that role. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, yeah, I could fit in that role. As long as you're picking third, I, I'd love to be there. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. I love, though, that he's imagined playing for the Blazers. That's that's fun. I like that. I don't know if his agent planted that or if he just that, – that's visualization. He, like he was describing imagining, like he could imagine himself playing next to Dame and how he would fit. You know, that, that's what he was explaining there. And, you know, it's, it's a good answer, right? Great answer to give. It's this Villanova guys, John. They do it right over there. Villanova visualization there's some truth in that mike florio he's not imagining he says there's a theory that the sports books are telling the players that it's okay to bet but just not on work property one player apparently lost eight million dollars last year on sports betting here's florio punch it who better than a guy in his early 20s mid 20s late 20s even 30s with a ton of disposable income yeah and a Who competitive has that, that yeah. little juice, little action. This is fun. Everybody's doing it. The ads are everywhere. Yeah, you want a guy like that to bet, Pat. You want a guy like that at the table. You don't want to push him away. So that's how I found this out. I was telling somebody about the fear, and it's like, wow, you know, somebody lost eight million last year. A guy in our league lost eight million last year. Now I don't know if it was legal, uh, legally or illegally wagered. I assume it was through legal betting in the right place, proper time. But the bottom line is somebody lost $8 million last year wagering on sports. So it just shows you that, that this is a problem. This is prevalent, and a lot of guys are doing it. And I don't know if there's anybody else in that magnitude of losses, wow. but if you total it all up over 2,000 players, it's going to be a lot of money that is flowing from the players to the sports book. That's, that's a big number, $8 million. Unnamed player apparently uh, lost $8 million gambling last season. Is it a star? I don't know. They're saying it's a star, but it's a bizarre policy that the league has. You know, uh, Mike Florio reporting this, you know, I'd I'd love to know who it is. I'd love to see confirmation of that. But if you're losing $8 million, I I would hope somebody in your circle is going, hey, we got to have a conversation about this. I mean, what what do you think of the rule that, I mean, literally the rule is if you're, at the practice facility, you can't do it, but you can step out of the building, off the property, onto the street, make a bet, and then walk back into the facility, and that's legal. You can do no, that. And I that's, like it. that's kind of what the theory is, is that the sportsbook said to the NFL, hey, you need to allow these young guys to bet on sports because we're going to make a lot of money off of them. 
I, I, if the league is doing that, the league should be, uh, you know, skewered for it. They, you know, they shouldn't be doing that. And so should, should, so should yeah. the players not be allowed to bet at all on any sports? Well, either allowed to bet or not allowed to bet, but the league shouldn't be the, the gatekeeper saying, well, if you step across the street, it's okay, go ahead, you know. But I, I, I would rather, look, I would rather just see the players eat, not allowed to bet. Like, and, and here's the other thing. Like, maybe there needs to be just, hey, you're not allowed to bet in the genre of your sport. You're an NFL player. You can't bet on college football. You can't bet on the NFL, obviously. Shouldn't be betting on your own team, Pete Rose. But, you know, you want to wager on horse racing or boxing? Fine, do it. And guess what? You don't have to walk across the street. Just, like, you know, either you're doing it or not doing it. I don't get the big deal of being on the facility and, and, you know, betting on the Kentucky Derby or Conor McGregor. If you're an NFL player, I don't understand, like, you know, the league's rationale there. It feels a little hypocritical, especially when they've got signage inside the stadiums promoting gambling. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. He's he's talking with Yogi Roth here. He was talking about retention of his coaching staff. Oregon State poised to take a step forward. Punch it. You know, and, they, and these guys have had some, uh, some options, and we just want to make it to a point where a coach at our place – as a really good option, maybe to ascend to a new level, which we've got a bunch of guys ready to coordinate, a few of them ready to be head coaches. Um, but those opportunities haven't come to be in. They feel good about what, we, what we're doing, the way we're doing it. I think they believe in the, a lot of what we've got going on. So I think it matters for our own roster to have the same type of coach year in and year out. And uh, it's paid, paid huge dividends. Huge dividends. Coaching staff got big raises Increased their salary pool to four point seven five million for next season. Uh, increase of uh, uh, you know ten assistant coaches got uh, increases, but um, you know, the biggest among them, Jim Mahalchek, the offensive line run game coordinator, got a sizable raise and deservedly so. The retention of Jonathan Smith's staff has been a real highlight for Jonathan Smith. It's one more thing he doesn't have to worry about. Unlike Jake Dickert at Washington State, Jonathan Smith didn't have to replace an offensive and a defensive coordinator. He could focus on recruiting and coaching his team. It's a big advantage. It helps with keeping players from jumping in the portal. And, you know, the lack of a collective at uh, Oregon State, if if that is true, what, what Tim Shelton is saying as he leaves for Colorado State, hey, you know, you just can't compete, you can't win. If that's true then, you know, credit to Jonathan Smith, who lost fewer players in the portal than any program. Is that sustainable going forward to hang on to all these coaches year after year? It's the, I, I think to a point. Brian Lindgren, the, the offensive coordinator, is going to want a job somewhere. But these guys came up with Jonathan Smith. Trent Bray came up with Jonathan Smith. That's his guy. Like I, I think he's picked guys that want to be loyal, are prone to be loyal. He's now rewarding them with more money. Like, you know, ultimately, though, they're going to want opportunities. So, no, it's not a forever thing, but it's the closest thing to forever that we're seeing in college football right now. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Leave it here. Well, we started today's show talking about birds. Then we had an interview with Tom Crean, 4 o'clock, that I thought was fantastic. John Wilner joined us. We had a uh, interesting discussion, a lot of audio and all of a sudden i look up it's five o'clock anna's popped into the studio for the five at five fresh off a speech last night she gave at the rotary club of 
What is that? The Rotary Club of what part of Portland was that? Central East Rotary Club. Because Portland's so big. Yeah, you got to make distinctions. You have to have a... You know what I liked about that Rotary Club meeting? I had uh, I'd not been in a Rotary Club meeting uh, ever. <laughs> but uh, they uh, they sang America... America the Beautiful? Is that right? For beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber waves of grace. Yeah. yeah. No, was no? that it? Was that they it? They sing a couple patriotic songs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was a guy there. Steven, you're going to love this. There was a guy there that was is kind of a banquet. Anna's going to give a speech. And my job is to be the end one in that situation, and I'm good with that. But there was a guy at our table who had his arm in a sling. And I said, what happened? And he said, I was on a safari in Africa, and I fell down. And I said, that's not your story. You were on a safari in Africa, and you got attacked by a lion. <laughs> and uh, uh, if you're going to go on a safari and get an injury, it's got to be a lion. Or a rhino came after you. Well, it's a must-lie situation, right? Like, you're making up a good story. It's not yeah. I just fell off the bus. No. He fell, he fell after the, the, like, the day's events. He was getting his cocktail. And apparently the power flickered and went out, and he went to get up, and he tripped over something, and he fell. Yeah, maybe, said, you, maybe you fell after getting chased <laughs> by a lion yes. or something. You yeah, know? you got to involve some kind of wildlife, some kind of safari wildlife. Or you just be vague. Story. You just go, you know what? There were a lot of lions, a lot of <laughs> elephants, and a lot of rhinos. I'm lucky that this is all I came back with. It's not. And you leave it at that. It's not not true. Yeah. Right? you, you got to leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, Anna's got her five top stories. I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to do the unthinkable. We're going to get right to it. The five at five. The five at five. The number one story in Anna's sports world is. Can you believe their first season was just five years ago? The Golden Knights. Hmm. No grace period needed from their inception to become championship contenders last night. The NHL's second youngest team hoisted that Stanley Cup in the air, clinching its first ever title with Game 5's win over the Panthers, 9-3. 9-3 win. A lot of people freaking out in the streets like every other city that uh, wins a championship. And the Golden Knights apparently went clubbing after. You know, they went to Tau and took the... Uh, Celebration to Omnia Nightclub in Caesar's Palace to continue the party. And Wait, how many places did they go? Uh, that's they, a lot that's just across for one the night. street. That's I know, but you know, in Vegas, that's like it feels like a long ways away. But you know what caught my attention is it said the Knights Golden Knights party with Stanley Cup at Las Vegas Strip Nightclub. <laughs> I read it as they went to a strip club. <laughs> Is that just me? I see. Am I the only one that did that? <laughs> uh, good for the Knights. Good party. Made me think a little bit about the Oakland days and how sad it is that Las Vegas is raiding Oakland for a uh, Major League Baseball team, you know, around the same time that they're winning an NHL championship. But credit to the Knights. They, they have really captured that city. And uh, good for them. Good for their local. Didn't have to take their hockey team from somewhere else. It was an expansion team. But the Golden Knights Parade. The parade will be Saturday at 7 o'clock on Las Vegas Boulevard. Pray for the uh, Uber drivers. Anna, this number two story. Go. <laughs> uh, Mike Leach uh, being inducted 
into the Texas Tech Hall of Fame, according to Bruce Feldman with The Athletic. Leach spent 10 seasons as the football coach there and is the program's all-time leader in wins with 84 wins. That's from 2000 to 2000. He parted ways with the Red Raiders in late 2009. He did also, we know him from his time at Washington State. Uh, but pretty cool that he post posthumously. He, of course, passed away, died in December due to complications uh, with his heart. In, tw- so. in 2012, we had Leach on this show more frequently than any sh- in, in in Bill Stevens, the Washington State Sports Information Director, told me. I th- he said, I think you interviewed Leach more than anybody. <laughs> uh, Mike Leach, oh, I asked him about, is there alien life? In the universe. Do I think they're little green men with uh, four fingers? I suspect not. Um, but what I what I think is, um, to me, it seems like it's way too much of an aberration that out of all of existence and everything, that we're the only inhabited planet. I find that to be a strap. I said, well, <laughs> it's impossible. You know, folks that will say it's impossible for there to be life on any other planet. Why well, in the reverse kind of true? Um, it wouldn't the reverse kind of be true that would uh, it's it, isn't it a little more unlikely that we're the only planet that has life? Well, thoughts on aliens aside, uh, there's an argument to be made that folks are talking about that Mike Leach had the greatest impact on college football in the 21st century with the air air raid offense and. Uh, how that impacted the sport. Discuss amongst yourselves. He had a lot of impact. He had a lot of influence. He was different. He thought outside the box. I just like talking to him on the show, you know. And, and, and granted, yeah, he had impact in the same way that, uh, you know, Chip Kelly had some impact. But Leach's impact, I would argue, sustained as he didn't leave for the NFL. He stayed in college football. He took it to several different places. But beyond that, I just think he was kind of an interesting cat, you know. Like, like in uh, 2015, when I asked, asked him about guns. A thousand guns. But I think in order to operate a gun, you should have a license that means I know what a gun is. I know the difference between a pistol and a revolver. I know the difference between a shotgun and a rifle. Uh, I, can, I, can, I can load and unload one, and I can shoot it, and within some level of competency, hit what I'm aiming at. And, and uh, failure to do that, you're not allowed to uh, operate a gun. He, he's not wrong there. If you don't know what a gun is, you shouldn't have one. Do you remember I, when I, I asked? most people would agree with Do that. you remember when in 2016 when I asked him if he wanted to be president <laughs> in the middle of election? Uh, you know, the hardest thing about that job is getting that job. Uh, I think the hardest thing is getting that job. But I want that job. Well, it's like anybody. I mean, it's like... It's like like my job you know everybody sitting at home thinks they want my job um you know uh and there and, and that's also a job like my job that that everybody thinks they know how to do that job better than the guy that has it you know uh would i want that job yeah i think i would now i just my suspicion is is, is you know if some if you threw some pixie dust my direction and i got it i'd wish i didn't after about a month but you know, after I checked out all the stuff, did the museums, flew the airplane, uh, you know, uh, ran around Camp David, 
you know, went to, you know, you could have all kinds of cool tours, you know, Washington and stuff like that. I mean, heck, you could even do a JFK mischief tour, you know, like uh, this is, you know, this is the room where, you know. Yeah. And um, Mike Leach in the Texas Tech Hall of Fame. Number three story. Go. Well, this is interesting. Uh, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan's recovering from an undisclosed medical situation. He'll be uh, allowing some other folks to take over the day-to-day operations of the circuit. He has informed the PGA Tour Policy Board that he is recuperating from a medical situation. He's, of course, been under intense scrutiny. After their announcement, June 6th, that it was forming an alliance with the DP World Tour and the LIV Golf League, bankrolled by Saudi Arabia's public investment funds. Lots of jokes, sadly, on social media about his medical condition and what it might be. References to lack of a backbone and such, but I won't go there. Here he is talking to uh, Jim Nance, stumbling through a response about how he would respond to the 9-11 families. You know, I wish, I think about the fact that I allowed confidentiality to prevail here. And in allowing confidentiality to prevail, I did not communicate to very important constituents, including the families of 9-11. And I regret that. Uh, I, I, I really do. Um, but as we sit here today, you know, I, I think I think it's important to you know to reiterate that um, I feel like the move that we've made and, and how we move forward is in the best interest of our sport. We've eliminated those fractures, um, but for for any uh, any difficulties I've caused on that front, again, I have to own that as well, and that comes back to communication. He's taken a lot of hits. He he said when he announced the LIV PGA deal that this would end the tension. Apparently not for him. Uh, he's taken a lot of criticism, a lot of public criticism. Uh, wonder if this is stress-related. Wonder if he steps down. Number four story, as you see it. You mentioned this earlier, but it's a big enough story that uh, it's worth talking about again. The Oakland A's actually uh, filled the stadium. So the A's had 27,759 A's fans show up for a reverse boycott. Uh, This, of course, happened on the same day that the Nevada Senate voted to approve a $380 million public money deal for a Las Vegas ballpark for the athletics. Timing's sort of cruel. Uh, But they showed up. They wore shirts, 7,000 of them that said sell and uh, had sort of an anti-party. Swinging a fair ball inside the third baseline and Siri's going to turn and make his way to second and he has notions about third. He'll put the brakes on as Seth gets it back in. Crowd goes silent and now getting very loud at the Coliseum. Taylor Walls would now stand in from Tampa Bay. Rays trying to open the scoring and uh, Hogan can't hear with the pitch con because of the crowd. And now time is called. Things have gotten loud here. And this is 
certainly a new experience in 2023 at the Coliseum. The chance of sell the team won the day there. Uh, I think it's sad stuff that the A's are potentially, likely, on their way to Vegas. Uh, Still need two hurdles to clear in Vegas, including the approval of the mayor, but it looks like it's headed in that direction. The number five story as Anna sees it. And here we are, number five. Nikola Jokic giving some perspective on his team's new title, the NBA championship. Uh, I just love what he said. He's talking about being successful, how you need a couple of years, you need to be bad, then you need to be good, then when you're good, you need to fail. And then when you fail, you're going to figure it out. Experience isn't about what happened to you. It's about what you're going to do about what happened to you. Yes, Jamal Murray was injured. Yes, we lose in the first or second round, but there is a process. There's steps you need to fulfill. No shortcuts. It's a journey, and I'm glad I'm part of the journey. Jokic has just established himself, I think, as the best player in the game. I think people leave this NBA Finals, this postseason, talking about him, thinking about him, thinking about where he is, sort of where does he rank in the post-Kareem uh, NBA world as a center. Uh, Mike Malone, though, coach of the Nuggets, was just talking about sort of this, like, you know, if you're if you're a Blazer fan, listen to what Malone said just a couple of days ago about how the Nuggets were built. And, and everybody, every individual, more importantly, every team collectively has to pick a path and stay true to it. And, and I feel really fortunate that our journey has been one of patience, one of drafting really well, and uh, developing those players, um, and then adding the, the right pieces around them. To your point, you add an Aaron Gordon, a KCP, a uh, Bruce Brown, whatever it may be. So, um, But everybody wants to do it differently. Some teams want to mortgage their future and try to go get the, the surefire player, the all-star. And, and for us, you know, there's never been a, a rushed mentality, and that starts with their ownership. You know, the Kroenke family has been phenomenal since day one allowing this thing to kind of play itself out and not overreacting to little bumps in the road. Um, And I think there are other teams in this league that are looking at how we've done it, smaller market teams, how we've done it. And I think more teams will try to, you know, kind of, you know, make this a blueprint. More teams try to make it a blueprint. Stay the course. Draft well. uh, Don't mortgage your future. I've been saying some of that, at least a big piece of that. for the last couple of weeks. We'll see what the Blazers do. That is the five at five. Steven, I want to pepper you a little bit. Nikola Jokic, where is he? Sort of uh, like we started that Lakers-Nuggets Western Conference Finals by saying, hey, Anthony Davis might be the best player on either team. We left that series going, no, he isn't. And now we leave the finals going, Nikola Jokic, is he the best player in the league right now? Yeah, I said this yesterday. I think we're overreacting just a little bit. You know, recency bias. He did just win the NBA championship, won the MVP. He's the first player in NBA history to lead a individual playoffs in points, rebounds, and assists. So, yes, he's up there. I still think Giannis is a little bit better than Nikola Jokic uh, at this point. But, I mean, it's it's, you know it's just it's neck and neck at this point. Like, it's that close. I don't think you're wrong either way, but I still think if I'm starting a team from scratch and I get every single play in the NBA, I would take Giannis over him. Uh, let's go to the Oakland A's. I think it's sad that the A's are leaving Oakland for Vegas. Anna, do you think baseball works in Vegas? <sighs> I'm dubious, and I know I'm saying that with the Knights and all the success that they've had. 
I am just a little leery about the notion of people coming into Vegas yep. and going and watching a baseball game. It can work if they get enough of the local Locals, people yep. involved. I mean, obviously, the locals have embraced the Knights. They love the Knights. They show up, and it's easy to root for a team that's doing well and, you know, winning the Stanley Cup. But um, will they? The, the question is just: Can they get enough of the locals to show up and go watch a baseball game? If they can get that, um, if they can dome it, I guess I don't know if there's any renderings yet for the stadium they want to build. But if they can dome it and keep it temperature controlled, like everything else, uh, will they have casinos on the concourse? I don't know. Are you going to be able to like uh, play craps on yeah. the concourse? They're pro- they, can you imagine? If they meant yeah. him? well, you know they are. They're, you know there's going to be a pool. There'll be a pool party where they're, you know, where they're having <laughs> where they're having the game, and and it'll be promotion, promotion, promotion of Vegas. Stephen believes they'll get enough of the Las Vegas crowd. I I still think you're going to have to draw visitors. You're going to have to draw transients. Now the A's are not, they're, they're they're claiming they studied this. Dave Cavill, the president of the A's, you know, contracted a uh, firm that gave him a. Feasibility study. This is what you do before you move a team, and uh, I I think you know they feel like they have done the work, uh, and they feel like they're going to draw. But we will see. Stephen, Mike Leach, where does he rank? What is his impact on college football? Oh, huge, huge. I think you know. I don't know. You guys kind of talked about like, is he the most influential person in college football history? I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah. I mean, just in that class with Texas Tech, Cliff Kingsbury is getting inducted as well. Like. That's his project. That was his quarterback. That was the guy that he looked up to. And you see the, you know, the fingerprints of Mike Leach all over college football, all over the NFL. If we're being frank now, like it's it's gone its way to the professional level. I mean, he definitely deserves this. It, it was a weird situation down at Texas Tech. How it all ended. You know, did he get paid? Did he not get paid? Like, but I think it's the right move uh, for Texas Tech to you know induct him into the Hall of Fame because he definitely deserves to be in that school's Hall of Fame. It's water under the bridge. It's no hard feelings. Uh, Rodney Allison, the executive director of the Double T Varsity Club, Double T for Texas Tech, is talking about the induction. Well, there were no conversations. I mean, he was nominated by uh, somebody, uh, a former player, and he was put on the ballot, and uh, uh, he got 96.9%. The Hall of Honor is just a slightly a little bit different. It's, it's, voted, it's voted on just by a yes or no vote, and it requires 90% yes to get into the Hall of Honor, and he was up there, I think it's 96.9 or 97.2. It's really a significant number and a very positive vote on for Coach Leach. Positive vote, significant number, water under the bridge. Um, you know, <laughs> Rodney Allison's got to talk about it, justify it. You could tell there were some bad feelings. Mm-hmm. Bad feelings there. All right. Good stuff. Anna, thank you for your contribution. Yeah. Hey, by the way, you see the Blue Jay today? Any sign? No sign at all. And I've been searching. And that's a good thing, right? Like we're assuming that the family of the Blue Jay has taken this bird. That's the happy version of the story. To recuperate. And yeah. That's the happy version Uh of the story. I really felt like we needed David Attenborough over here narrating this whole thing the last few days. Yeah. Man, well, you had your husband was out there. Yeah, you were out there. I was out there doing what I do. Ranger uh, Rick, as I've I, been calling him. I should be on the uh, Audubon Society. They were asking me if I had any free time to come volunteer. 
You guys have you know? no idea how obnoxious he was mm-hmm. after his conversation with the Audubon Society. Oh, they do. I started the show with it. He told me no less than three times how the lady on the phone with the Audubon exactly Society what I was supposed to do was affirming everything that he had done yeah. as one hundred percent right. She pretty much said, "You should write the handbook for people who find foul uh, in the course of their day." A lot of people will pick up foul. And bring it into the Audubon Society. Did you know 80% of the birds that the Audubon Society uh, has people bring in are kidnapped? Yeah. They weren't in yeah. distress. They're not injured. They yeah. sh- Then they tell them, could you please take that bird back to where you found it and release it? Uh-huh. That can't be true. 80%. 80% Eight- of birds are kidnapped? No, no. 80% of the birds that, are, that, are, that people bring into the Audubon Society are classified as You've kidnapped that bird. It didn't need your help. Take it back to where you found it. Okay. okay. That makes a little more sense. <laughs> His 4-H is showing, did you, Steven. Did you think I meant 80% of all birds got kidnapped? <laughs> I thought you meant, like, people are going up in nests and, like, snatching birds and be like, hey, this bird needs help. <laughs> what, what, what the problem is oh boy. when you run into a Here we go. fledgling that is <laughs> okay. in distress. Buckle up, everybody. People think, oh, people think, oh, this bird can't fly. It must be injured. Mm-hmm. That is the definition of a fledgling. It should just be kind of flapping around. It doesn't know how to fly yet. There's a process from going from the nest to going to uh, being able to fly around. The second thing, and this was suggested by a member of our household that you should not do, uh, you don't provide water to the bird. Okay? Uh Somebody, everybody thinks we need water. Mm -hmm. The bird doesn't need water like the way we need water. Mm -hmm. The bird needs mama bird to regurgitate food right into its mouth yeah and you can't do that yourself mm-hmm. try it mm-hmm. it won't work okay did, yeah. you, did you ask that question do you know that for sure uh the water part no the regurgitation part can i <laughs> can i try or is it you did, can, did, I, I would like, I frown upon that i actually would like to see you try to regurgitate into a bird's mouth try that tonight with your kids and you can tell them <laughs> that our resident ornithologist john canzano Suggested this ornithologist. Yeah. yeah. So if I get in trouble, I'll just blame you, John. Yeah. My, mm-hmm. You know, the host told me to do it. The yeah. bald-faced ornithologist. That's that's your new title. I like that. Mm-hmm. Like the ring of it. Leave it here. You get the B F O. Well, the Bald Face Truth Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament is coming up June 29th at the Reserve Golf Course and Vineyards. Great course out there. They have two great courses out there. Uh, the event will benefit uh, the BFT Foundation and helps fund Camp Exceptional, the summer camp that the 501c3 puts on for special needs kids and typical kids. It's a great sports camp, and uh, the kids have a lot of fun. It's the highlight of the summer for our family, for sure, and for a lot of the campers as well. Uh, The tournament is sold out. It is presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Brandon and the team at High Caliber have supported for years. Other sponsors include Jamba, Bricks Tavern, White Claw, Grassroot Print Shop, Sport Oregon, 750 The Game, of course, as you're listening, Biologic Resources, Gresham Ford, The Wall, First Call Heating and Cooling, Shoe Mill Shoe Stores, Breakside Brewery, and the real estate team of Homes by Homes. Got to thank uh, everybody who supports. If you want to help the nonprofit organization, you can make a tax-deductible donation and help make the event an even bigger success by going to baldfacedtruth.org. If you give there, you're supporting. And you can support as well by listening to the live broadcast on Thursday, June 29th. 
Again, this tournament presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Uh, it'll be Stephen and Judah on the scene calling the action, 3 to 6 p.m. Celebrity golfers include Miss Oregon, uh, former NFL defensive back Alex Molden, uh, Oregon State women's basketball coach Scott Ruick will be out there as a celebrity golfer. Mark Wazikowski, the Oregon baseball coach, will be out there as a celebrity golfer. Mike Walter, three-time Super Bowl champion with the 49ers and former Oregon Duck, will be there. Bobby Gross will be there, champion in 1977. we got two umpires this year. Jimmy Joyce, uh, umpired three Major League Baseball All-Star games and three World Series will be out there. He'll be part of the Celebrity Golf uh, crew. And Dale Scott, retired Major League Baseball umpire Dale Scott, who worked three World Series himself, will be out there as a celebrity golfer. Tom Gorman, who pitched in the big leagues. Shantae Leggins, University of Portland, men's basketball coach. we got Coin TV anchor Ken Bodie, who will be on the scene. Uh, Wesley Ogle of uh, K2 will be there as well. And... Uh, uh, Marcus Harvey, the CEO and founder of Portland Gear, I convinced him to come play. He was like, I'm not a celebrity. I was like, yes, you are. You have built a brand. You have built a company. And uh, I want to thank all the celebrity golfers who are uh, engaged in playing, uh, some others as well. But you can see the full list of celebrity golfers as it gets updated. Baldfacetruth.org is... Uh, the uh, place to see it all, or if you want to make a uh, tax-deductible donation. We came this close, Stephen, this close to getting Ben Gregg, the center at Gonzaga, mm. to play. We ran into a little trouble with Mark Few. i got to have a word with Mark Few. He's got to practice that day or some kind of workout scheduled, and uh, he would not let Ben Gregg out of the workout to come play golf. Come on. What kind of Mark, program is that? Yeah, doesn't he know his values there? Come on, get the get Ben Gregg out there to golf. Yeah, my, my wife, Coach Vaughn, she uh, she knows Ben Gregg. She used to uh, teach him, I think, at Clackamas High School, so she's a big Ben Gregg fan. Yeah, there's some good golfers this year. Lisa Johnson, who is the Nebraska women's golf coach, is going to play as a celebrity golfer as well. She's apparently pretty damn good she is a class a pro i don't know what that means if you're a golfer you probably know what that means i am not a cl class a pro but uh it should be a lot of fun are you looking forward to like here's how it works because you've never been you've never been there for the event have you steven uh no i have never been there i i just had started here uh last year for the golf tournament but i was running the board back here so okay. I, was, I was doing everything back here Here's how it goes down. Uh, there will be a live broadcast, so everybody, every station that is listening across the network or streaming will be able to hear the event. And all of those celebrity golfers and more will be, because I'm told like guys like Terrell Brandon, former NBA player, he's playing on a team. He's not even playing as a celebrity golfer. He should be. But he apparently wanted to be on a team, and so he has joined one of the teams that will be out there just playing. So you're going to have all these guys that kind of cycle through you and Judah will be set up with a live broadcast right on one of the tee boxes. So what will happen is you will get, you know, throughout the course of the broadcast, interview after interview after interview with golfers who are sort of just on their way around the turn playing, you know, their round of golf. It's a great event. Uh, I, I think everybody who is there, like the, you know, the beauty of the BFT Foundation is that it doesn't have employees the curse of the BFT Foundation is that it doesn't have employees, so it's a lot of volunteers, and it's a lot of kind-hearted business owners like Steve at Jamba and Bess at Gresham Ford and Brad at First Call Heating and Cooling and Mark at Bricks uh, in the Urban Restaurant Group family 
and it's Rick at the Wall. It's all these businesses that you hear that are part of the show, the Shoemill family. They just they come back year after year. They make it very easy. It's turnkey. The event sells out immediately because all of the sponsors want to be back in it. Randy, uh, who is uh, you know at basically uh, the printer, uh, he's got a print company. He you know he reached out to me. He was like, hey, what do you need? And I was like, oh, thanks for asking. Like you know, grassroots print shop. I think it's just amazing to see the community come together to make the event happen. And then the event happens, and it's a lot of fun. So you'll be there, uh, you know, with with one of the best seats in the house, Stephen. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, I mean, the last time, it was really cool. I mean, uh, old school guy here, Sean McPherson, he was interviewing everyone. It was a really good time, some great interviews, and uh, I can't wait to be out there. Yeah, you know, nice day. Uh, golf, nothing wrong with that. You got to mix it up, though. You can't do like a Jim Nance call on the golf. You got to, you know, can't be like, Ross. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know. Oh, I, I, hey, I'm no Jim Nance. I can tell you that. If we do that, we might as well just go AI. And, and <laughs> Should we try it that day? Just go AI, host the show? Can they do it? Well, they've already done that, haven't they? Didn't they do an AI golf uh, call or broadcast call that, that you know was in conjunction with, I think it was the Masters. Yeah, here's the commentary for the Masters. This is artificial intelligence commentary for the Masters. Substrucker, 28 years old from Austria, is going to hit from the pine straw on hole one. He took stroke two, and the ball traveled 162 yards into the greenside bunker. You do that, you're going to put the audience to sleep. John Canzano at the tee, tee shot in the middle, 200 yes. yards. The most pressure I have ever felt in my life came at T number one years ago during this tournament. I'm not exaggerating. It was, um, I had not anticipated that I was going to have to hit a golf shot with people watching me. Now, I have often wondered at, you know, you watch the pros at these big events and you go, wow, how do they, uh, how do they perform with all those people so narrowly packed around the tee box? And I found myself in a, very similar setting, except it wasn't like at Augusta. It was at the Reserve. And there wasn't hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people around the tee box. It was literally Bill Shonley, uh, the late mayor of Rip City, who was sitting off to the side, and he said, John, it's your tournament. You hit the shot. Now, it's not my tournament, but all eyes turned to me. I had not warmed up. I was not ready to hit a shot. I had, you know, I was just sitting in the golf cart going, oh, I haven't warmed up. I didn't even hit at the range, like, you know, because I was so busy kind of shaking hands and talking to people before the event. And all of a sudden, Sean Lee was telling me, go, go, go hit the shot. We're all watching you, buddy. And you know, if it's a bad shot, Sean Lee's going to be, he's not going to say he's mad. He's, gonna, he's disappointed, <laughs> right? Like, John, I'm disappointed in you. And so everybody stopped. All the heads that were there turned to me. And I took a ball out of my bag. And I'm thinking to myself, don't swing hard. Just swing as fluid as you can and try to keep the ball in the fairway. And I teed the ball up. I took a couple of practice swings. And <laughs> I I was very focused. And I'll never forget, I was looking at the ball, and I was just saying, just look at the ball, just look at the ball. And I just took a nice, easy swing. And I'll tell you what, it didn't go like 275, okay? went like probably 220, 210. But it went right down the fairway. But that, that's like uh, the first pitch, right? You don't want you yeah. can't you can't airmail the first pitch or you know bring it short. You got to at least get it there. 
right? I it just, doesn't it yeah. doesn't have to be a great pitch. Just get to the catcher. It was passable. That's what it was. It was just passable, and I, I didn't embarrass myself, which was the whole point. And then everybody else hit, and then Sean Lee. It came his turn to hit, and he did the he did the strangest thing. He said, "I'm old enough." I'm going to hit from the women's tees. And he walked up to the ladies' tees, proud as can be, and you know took the advantage of hitting uh, hitting it uh, from a shorter distance. So, uh, And I said, you know what? I'm not making fun of him because he's Bill Shonley. All right, leave it here. we got some parting thoughts coming up. you got the BFT. Nick Daschle, who covers Oregon State, caused a little stir this morning. Uh, probably not the favorite guy on campus in Corvallis in the athletic department today, but... Uh, he reported that Tim Shelton, uh, assistant basketball coach at Oregon State, uh, was leaving Oregon State and had cited um, the lack of an NIL presence as part of the reason why he was leaving, basically saying, hey, we can't compete against uh, the Oregon, the Oregon, uh, the uh, Arizonas, and others in this conference. He's headed to Colorado State, by the way. Uh, here's a question I have, Stephen. I want to kick this around with you. Okay, so Oregon State has come out. They're obviously sensitive to this. They don't like this. They're saying, you know, we are happy with our collective. We disagree with his viewpoint on it, blah, blah, blah. That's their statement. I've tweeted out the statement. If you want to see it, you can follow me on Twitter, at John Canzano BFT. But here's the question I have for you, Stephen. I'm trying to figure out if I'm Jonathan Smith, the football coach at Oregon State, or Wayne Tinkle, the men's basketball coach at Oregon State, I'm trying to figure out if I like that he went out with this news or I hate that he went out with this news and I, let me reason this yeah that's a good question on one hand if I it, while you're recruiting you don't want the perception that your NIL collective is not on par with others like that could hurt you like if I'm Wayne Tinkle I'm going great now prospective recruits that I'm trying to recruit are going I'm not gonna go there they don't have an NIL collective that can compete with others without hearing a word now, you can always combat that by proving them wrong, I'm sure. Money talks, I think, in the end. But money and opportunities. But I'm also thinking of it from a standpoint of while we're busy making excuses or frame, reframing the success that Jonathan Smith has had, you know, he won 10 games, they don't have a great collective. Like, you know, what a great coach. Like, I, I'm kind of trying to figure out how upset these coaches will be by an assistant basketball coach going public what do you think it's tough because i i want to say i want to say it's good if i'm wayne tinkle i'd like that that news is out there because it puts pressure on oregon state's collective to spend money if they're really not if they're not spending money i think it puts pressure on but if they if as they say you know you know uh rick bar or um what what the AD's name? I can't. I just lost his name. Uh, uh, Scott Barnes. Scott Barnes. I said Rick Barnes. Scott Barnes. Scott Barnes. Uh, you know him and him and Tingle both said you know that's not necessarily true that they're not you know giving out nil money from the collective. If it's if it is not true and they are giving out money, I think it's bad for recruiting. But I think I lean more towards Coach Shelton. He's not just going to leave up and leave Oregon State for no reason when he like there's no reason to leave Oregon State right now. Like he has ties to the Beaver program. And there's no reason not to lie, like to lie about it in this situation when he's out the door. So I think, I think it ultimately is good for Wayne Tinkle because now he can go and say, look, like we're losing, we're not only we're losing players, we're losing coaches because we can't, you know, bring NIL money in. Like if you expect me to win, it's not going to happen because I can't put out a competitive team. We're already losing mm -hmm. some guys. I need money to be competitive. You, we, we played that Kyle Smith sound, 
you know, back uh, maybe like a month ago where he's saying, you know, we need a certain amount of money just to compete on this level. And if you're expecting to compete in the Pac-12, I can't do it if I can't buy these guys. Yeah, here's Kyle Smith, the Washington State coach, talking about the ballpark figure to be a top 60 team in college basketball. To give you ballpark, oh, my gosh, probably to probably in the million to million five to be, that's just to be, I'd say, I wouldn't say Pac-12, but I'd say that'd be top 60 hmm. team, which would be NIT, you know, 60 to 40. But there'll be some teams that aren't doing much that will be on those guys' heels. You don't know. That's that's just a guess. Okay. I don't know. Just a guess. I, a million to million and a half? I mean, it, yeah. let's just say if Tim Shelton's telling the truth and Oregon State's you know, only given 200000 300000 like how are they expected to win? How is he expected yeah. to be you know elevated to a higher coaching stratosphere? He's not. And so he's making – you know, the preemptive decision to leave and go somewhere else where, you know, Colorado State, they actually have a good program. They've had a good program for years, so, you know, they may be putting in money. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the reaction is. Now, I want to get Dick Oldfield, who is the head of Damnation Collective. He's one of the co-founders of Damnation Collective. I I would like to see him on tomorrow's show. Like, that, my, my immediate response is... Get obvious. him on the show. I want, I want, to, I want to hear from the collective. Are you doing enough? Do you, do what you are you it, doing? Do you think it's a thing where maybe they're not investing as much into basketball as they are football? Because we yes. just talked about the retention. 100%. Yeah, the retention of football. I, I think they're. I, I think that's probably happening in a lot of places. But you know, here's okay. Here's an interesting conversation I had with UCLA athletic director Martin Jarmond. Okay, um, I obviously have a good relationship with him. Had him on the show. I don't agree with UCLA leaving the conference. He and I have argued and bickered over that stuff, you know, off air and talked about what they're doing. And, I, you know, you know where I stand on UCLA and USC leaving the Pac-12. I, I, I don't think it's great for, for anybody but UCLA and USC. And, and potentially it's not great for them. But I, I asked Martin Jarman, I said, you know, the Big Ten schools are going to get $65, 68000000 million in media rights money. Pac-12 schools could get $32, 33000000 million in media rights money. Um, what do you think happens? What do you think happens to Pac-12 schools in football? And he kind of argued. He said, had UCLA stayed in the Pac-12, that he didn't think that football would have taken the hit because you have to continue to invest in the thing that's bringing you the revenue. So you have to continue to shovel coal into football at a level that is competitive with other programs nationally that are trying to win and get to the playoff. So he didn't think that the Pac-12 schools that are remaining in the conference necessarily would invest less in football. He kind of wondered, he said if they were at UCLA, it would have been the other sports where they would have cut some corners. They would have had to make some tough decisions. And I kind of think that is probably playing out, especially with NIL collectives that are maybe on the lean side. They're still going to invest in football, aren't they? Because Football is what is going to generate money for the athletic department. So I kind of wonder if Oregon State's collective is, you know, maybe it's doing less for men's basketball. I don't know. I want to ask Dick Oldfield what's going on with that. But uh, I, I kind of wonder if Oregon State's collective, is it possible they're funding football uh, and going, hey, we have to put our – we need Damian Martinez to come back. We have to get DJU something. Aiden Childs, they you know got to keep him in the program, so we're gonna have to plan for that day 
when Aiden Childs needs to get an NIL deal. And maybe not having that kind of buying power across the program in basketball. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense to me. And, it, you know, Oregon State, they've always done things a little differently because they have to, right? Like, they're not in, like, the big city. They're not the big-time program that these other schools are. And, I mean, back in the day, you know, when they're getting these this Pac-12 network money, they were paying off debts instead of, you know, adding facilities like all these other schools are doing because they wanted to pay off those debts. And I think they're kind of doing the same thing now. It's like they see that the football team is having a lot of momentum. And they can they can you know retain some players, retain some coaches, get them some money, and then if that keeps working, they'll ultimately make more money. And then at that point, then maybe they can start distributing a little more to basketball or to baseball or you know to you know women's basketball, something like that. I, I think right now they're kind of starting with the main money maker in football, so I think it makes a lot of sense. What you're saying is you know let's hang on to these guys in football and continue to win eight, nine, ten games and see where it goes from there, and then ultimately we can go down and trickle down to other sports. Yeah, I think I think you got to keep an eye on it because it, again, I'm gonna I'm efforting right now to get Oldfield on the show tomorrow because I I would just like to talk it through with him and and hear from him like you know is it nonsense and here's the other thing that's kind of kind of wonky, um you know there was some legislation passed today in Texas that sort of helped privatize the NIL collectives like you know the the IRS is saying we do not believe that collectives that have been set up as nonprofits are actually nonprofits. So I, what I think we're going to see is we're going to see the collectives not be able to be a 501c3. They shouldn't. Like, you know, that is not a true spirit of the nonprofit, um, you know, uh, entity. But I kind of wonder if what we're going to see is, are is it possible that we're going to see this really go private? And And by the way, how will we know then if Oregon State really does have less buying power except by looking at their roster and going, well, I guess they're losing guys. You know, I think that's what we're kind of assuming now when we when we see programs that have defections, that maybe the reason they defected is that, you know, there there wasn't a uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, a, an opportunity there to keep a player. I don't know. Do you do you think that it's as easy it's as simple as that where it's just if it's a smaller type of school and they're they just can't afford these players like is that are these players really going out to just say you know what I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can I don't care what school it is uh, I'm going to leave like is it that simple or is there a way for a team that can't you know necessarily afford all these top top flight players to keep them at their own schools like I just feel like it's I want to. I want to believe that it's not all about like every single dollar. But at the end of the day, like that's what we're made to believe. That's what we keep hearing about is these kids are leaving for the top dollar price. I just I want to believe it's a little different, but I just I don't know. It's hard to I'll, it's hard to yeah. think that way. I'll go back to Kyle Smith in Washington State. Um, you know, here's what he said. He he's saying the same thing that Shelton said today at Oregon State. Uh, that yes, but I think they're yes. That's fair. But yeah, it's, no. But it's I don't know. Be... I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. But it's got... it's, it's a ridiculous amount of money that that some of these people are throwing around. It, I don't think that was the intention of the rule by any stretch. And uh, but it is what it is, and it's 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 a. Uh, I don't think people. I don't think people can quite fathom what the kind of the money that's being thrown around. The question he was asked is: Are you not getting enough money from the collective? Is that the problem? And he says, yes, we're not. We're not. That's why he's losing players, not getting enough money 
from the collective to compete. But we'll see how how well it works with Colorado. I mean, they threw money out for everything. Yes. Is it going to work in year one, year two? Like, how quickly is that turnaround? But it kind of gives you an example. Like, if you can generate enthusiasm for the program, you're going to generate gift giving to your NIL. And that's why Arizona State's doing something really interesting. They're playing a numbers game. They're just going, hey, we have more alumni than anybody. We have a bigger campus, more students. Hey, can we get $50 from everyone? And they're kind of doing this thing where they're, you know, they're playing the, hey, recur recurring donations. You know, they're playing that game. Oregon's doing it different. Oregon's making one phone call. You know who that call is. And they're going, hey, Uncle Phil, can you, you know, we need a quarterback. We need a shooting guard. And and seeing what happens. Uh, I'll dive deeper on this. If you want to read me, read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. The bald-faced truth is back tomorrow. The BFT, not here for a long time, just a good time.